0: You're listening to TopCast, this old pinball's online radio. For more information, visit them anytime, www.marvin3m.com
1: slash TopCast.
0: Welcome to TopCast. Tonight we got another great show with a designer that started out as a video game designer, designing such video games as Tron and Spy Hunter, and then finally ended up at the Bally Williams Pinball Division in the 1990s, designing games there. He is also the father of Pinball 2000, which is a platform that started in 1999 at Williams that combined a video monitor in a holographic fashion into a pinball machine.
1: Special Special. Special So
0: I'd like to welcome George Gomez to TopCast. George designed some incredible pinball titles at Valley Williams in the 1990s, including Corvette, Monster Bash, Revenge from Mars. He's also done some designs for the current Stern pinball, including Playboy, Sopranos, and, of course, Lord of the Rings. We're going to give George Gomez a call right now and uh, talk to him here on TopCast.
2: Hey Clay.
0: Hey George, can you hear me? Okay. I can. All right, great, George. Uh, let's talk about how you got into pinball and how you started out your uh, your life as a designer.
2: I studied industrial design um, at the University of Illinois in Chicago, and um, I graduated in um, May of '78. Uh, and my first job out of school was actually at Midway Games. Um, I did video games before I did uh, toys or pinball. Hmm. Um, so in the fall, um, I, I blew off the summer, and uh, in the fall, I started looking for work. had another teacher that had said, you know, you really should design something that you're passionate about because you're going to get your best work that way. Um, you're going to love to go to work, and you're going to love to do this. And at the time, I was playing a lot of video games um, in the... Um, in the student center at, uh, at the university. And, uh, you know, between classes or during lunchtime or whatever, they had an arcade and I would go into the arcade and I would play the very, very crude video games. I mean, what you would find basically in, in 1977 and 78, uh, basically black and white, uh, very, very crude. I, I, you know, I spent a lot of quarters on the key games, uh, tank game. Um, I don't know if you remember that game, you know, top-down, uh, sort of a, um, a maze on either side and, uh, a minefield separating the two mazes. And, uh, so anyway, I was playing these games and I was way into, the, uh, you know, I just kind of, I had never made the connection that, you know, I could design a game, but it occurred to me one day with, you know, all the arrogance of a 22-year-old that the stuff really sucked. It was, uh, it was pretty bad,
1: um...
2: <laughs> Tanks didn't look like tanks and, you know, jets didn't look like jets and, and uh, you know, the controls were abysmal. And and here I, you know, I had kind of spent all this time in school studying, you know, man-machine interface and how do you make, you know, controls that feel right and look good and all this kind of stuff. And so I thought, hey, you know, why don't I call one of these companies and try to get a job doing this since this seems like, it, you know, it could be a lot of fun. And um, I noticed that there was a company um, here in, in, in the outskirts of Chicago called Midway, and I noticed that because it used to say Midway Manufacturing, Franklin Park, Illinois. And I said, "Well, that's—I know where that is. It's up by the airport." So, um, you know, I called and I, I called over there and um, got some guy in HR, and I said, "I'm a designer, and I, you know, I—I I think you know you guys really need help, and I'm, you know, I—I want to make games and." Uh, you know, he brought me in, and and I I think that they didn't know what to make of me. You know, they they really um, the company at the time had a lot of engineers. They had mechanical engineers, and they had uh, electrical engineers. Um, most of the software people were electrical engineers by training or mathematicians at the time. Um, and um, so I came in, and and before I came in, I had a, um, I had sort of taken a bunch of looked at a bunch of their products and this, this is really not you know this was not innovation on my part it was simply something that we had been taught in school was to you know to really kind of understand the products of the companies that you would apply to work for and so uh, I had taken a lot of their product and sort of redesigned it my way um, without knowing anything about anything because you know when you're 22 years old what you know what what really do you know even even if you know even if somebody says you're you're now a degree designer, and so um, so I went in there with a bunch of stuff that that was kind of my vision of what they should be doing, and and um, you know I think the I think the right away that they saw that uh, well you know here's you know here's this kid that uh, has thought into this a little bit, and uh, so they paraded a bunch of engineering people through um, during my interview and and looked at my stuff, and and um, you know at the end of the day the. Uh, the guy who was the chief engineer at the time. Uh, um, you know, offered me a job, and so I, you know, uh, uh, I remember he took me out to the factory, and they were running uh, Space Invaders at the time. And um, so you could, uh, you know, that scene in Indiana Jones where they put the, uh, you know, they put the crate with the ark. Um,
0: yeah, way in the back.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so it's, so they, you know, you're in an office area at what, uh, what used to be Midway Manufacturing out in Franklin Park, and. And in the office, you know, it's an office, and engineering looks actually very primitive. The only guys with computers are the uh, the programmers. Uh, everybody else has got drawing tables and, uh, you know, even the electrical engineers. And uh, um, so we're in this office area, and he walks me through giving me the tour, and then he throws open the door, and and there, as far as the eye could see, running off into infinity, was, uh, you know, the assembly area, the factory, basically, with an assembly line of space invaders going off as far as the eye could see. And, you know, your your senses are assaulted by the sound of the air tools and the bustle and hustle of literally hundreds of people. I mean, uh, that's a game that they produced over 70,000 copies of, which, um, you know, I mean, the the largest run of... Pinball machines to date was, uh, you know, I think Pat's game at, at something like twenty-two thousand and change, or, right? If I remember correctly, right? Yep. So imagine the cons, you know, imagine the notion of, uh, and this was a factory where not only were they producing Space Invaders, they were producing other products. So this was a factory that was turning out eleven 1, hundred coin-operated games a day. Uh, if you, can, you know, it's like it's it's a. It's a hard number for people to to even people in the business, right? Because the the a pinball machine factory at the height of the you know during the, the 90s craze would you know Williams could maybe make across both lines maybe 300 games a day. So um, you know grasp that number, 1,100 games a day. There was a line of semi trucks with raw material coming into the plant on one end. And they would literally be stacked up, starting at uh, five in the morning, um, for for many blocks, screwing up all the Franklin Park traffic. And at the other end of the factory, there was a line of semi trucks leaving with crated games. Um, so, I mean, you know, it was just a, to, you know, to to kid out of school. It was an overwhelming uh, experience. I mean, I, I walked out there, I was like, oh my god, you know. Um, 300 bucks a week, $15,600 a year, um, come and design games, so, um...
0: Hey, now, you said you bought some of their products that you had redesigned, like, was, give me an example. Well, I just basically took their
2: stuff, like, uh, I went out to the, the arcades and looked at stuff that they, you know, had midway labels on it, and, uh, and I just kind of redid it the way I envisioned it.
0: Well, what do you mean, like, control panels?
2: No, like the whole, everything, the entire package, you know. Um, so I would, you know, I did, uh, I even took stuff, even stuff on the screen, because I didn't know where the lines were drawn, you know. I didn't know who was allowed to design what. I it, I just looked at the whole thing. I mean, I did, uh, I mean, I had a couple of pieces, if I can find them somewhere, I'm sure I have them somewhere that have, uh you know, even, even the, you know, even the marquee art, uh, you know, I thought needed to tell the story. So. Um, and so I think that uh uh in the beginning they wouldn't let me anywhere near um, uh, the actual design of of, of what we know as a game I was stuck in uh they threw me into the um, mechanical engineering department and I did um, control systems and uh, you know control panels and and uh and and in cabinets you know uh, uh here kid we need a we need a submarine periscope for a game uh, for a submarine game here kid we need a gun for a, a gun game and uh you know we need some you know that thing looks like a fighter joystick for a flying game and we need a you know we need a sit down driving cabinet for uh, a driving game so all that kind of stuff but you know that stuff got old quick and uh well
0: what title what titles did you work on that you know specifically what what video titles then, then
2: um god you know uh Lots of stuff that, uh, lots of obscure stuff that you've probably never heard of because Midway was basically, uh, um, you know, licensing a lot of product and producing uh, tons of stuff. The very first, very first thing I did on my first day at work was style, a thing that looked like a spear gun for a game called Blue Shark. Black and white video game where basically all these fish swam across the screen and you turned the gun and the gun had a couple of uh, potentiometers uh, driven by by small gears to determine the position of the fish, and when you lined up and you squeezed the trigger, you basically shot the fish with a spear so um, uh, that was the very very first thing that i that I did
0: so you did the control panel
2: i did the the thing that looked like a it was a big gun that looked like a looked like a spear gun, and it you know it it was the thing that you that you actually played the game with hmm so you remember back in the day when, when gun games actually had guns on them, right?
0: Yeah, I'm a big gun game collector, so I got the electromechanicals. Yeah, Blue Shark
2: was basically it was I believe it was actually designed by Taito, and uh, Midway was manufacturing it. And um, you know they need Taito basically sent software over, and Midway did everything else. And uh, and so that um, you know I worked on that. I worked on um, I did the. The uh, famous um, uh, Gorf um, uh, joystick, you know, the control stick that uh, um, was uh, years later. I took it and turned it into the Tron stick.
0: Yeah, I was. I was just gonna say that. Yeah, you know, it was like the same stick as Tron.
2: Exactly, I did that. There's a thing that looks like a dot matrix, uh, little red and black uh, display panel on the on the, um, the you know on the top of the joystick, and it's backlit.
0: Right. Exactly. Okay.
2: If you if you look search. Search in that area, you will find my name in there says gomez in you know in, in that little in the little dot matrix,
0: yeah, every time you press the button, that thing lit
2: right, so you know just uh, you 'll see all the letters are turned sideways and separated in every which way, um, but uh, yeah, poke around in there and you 'll see it.
0: Did they know that you did that?
2: Uh, probably not <laughs> probably not midway midway at the time, midway in the um, in the eighties was run by um, manufacturing guys, guys that came from the factory side of the world. And um, they were not real keen on giving um, designers credit. I think they were very, very, um, uh, I don't know, concerned of about, uh, you know, that we would become rock stars or something. I'm not sure. But they were very touchy about credit. So a lot of that stuff, uh, it wasn't until years after, I left there that people realized that I had done Spy Hunter. Um, while I was there, um, you know, uh, Spy Hunter was a midway game. Uh, you know, nobody knew anything about me relative to the game. Hmm. Um,
0: Are you saying you designed the whole game or just the controls for it?
2: No, I designed the game. I designed the game. I brought the concept in-house. Uh, you know, basically, um, Bill Adams, a guy named Bill Adams, was running the software group at the time, and he said, you know, we I mean, I'm I'm kind of jumping ahead. I'll I'll get there if you.
1: um, Okay, sorry. So I did.
2: That's okay. I. um, So I did. Um, I did these controller things, and there were there were um, a couple of other guys. Um, There was a guy named Bill Adams who was um, a software uh, engineer, um, and um, and there was a guy named Atish Ghosh who was a hardware engineer, and the three of us. um, You know, we'd go out to lunch and pal, you know, pal around and and uh we we really wanted to uh make games um, and um, the company at the time the business of Midway was licensing products such as Space Invaders from Taito and, and of course the most famous uh Midway game of all time uh the license from Namco for Pac-Man um, and so uh, uh they had two um, two sort of um, resident design Shops. uh, Neither of them were in house, but they were owned by Midway. One was called Arcade Engineering in Florida, in South Florida, um, run by a guy named Ronnie Halliburton, and um, uh, they had done their claim to fame was uh, Omega Race, and then they had uh, Dave Nutting and Associates in Arlington Heights, just maybe uh, I don't know, 20 minutes from the Midway office, the the, the actual factory where I worked, and um, run by. Uh, a guy named Dave Nutting, who, by the way, also happens to be an industrial designer by trade. I didn't know that at the time, but. Hmm. Um, and so, um, uh, uh, Dave Nutting and Associates did Gorf, Gorf, by the way, Wizard of War, Gorf, uh, uh, a bunch of other things. And, you know, they were the big kahunas. You know, they would, you know, Dave Nutting would tool up in his Ferrari and, you know, with this, uh, you know, really, um, uh, actually Dave Nutting and Associates, by the way, as, as a pinball aside, is where, where Pat Lawler got his first job in the, in the game business. Uh, before he designed pinball machines, Pat uh, designed video games at Dave Nutting & Associates.
0: So you're saying that Dave Nutting was different than the other Nutting?
2: Uh, they were brothers, but Dave Nutting & Associates was owned by Midway. It was a captive, captively owned Midway R&D house.
1: Hmm. And,
2: um, so you can imagine that uh, the powers that be at Midway paid a lot of attention to products that came from Dave Nutting. They paid a lot of attention to products it came from arcade engineering, um, and then the, the, the what we call the in-house engineers, of which I was a, was a part of, we were really a support group. We were basically taking and filling in the blanks for anything that wasn't that didn't come in done from the outside. Uh, so we were getting things. We were making sure that things were manufacturable. We were making we were cost reducing things. We were dealing with. Uh, service issues you know, like something that was breaking in the field would get you know come back and have to be redesigned or whatever, whether it was a cabinet or whatever, even the electronics, so we had all of the all the disciplines you know we had software we had art we had um, um, you know and mechanical and we had uh, electronics hardware design we had all the all the stuff but but it was like we were always you know working i mean how I got to work on the gorf joystick was Dave Nutting brought in a um, a game with a, um, I, th- I think it was a copy of an uh f four phantom uh joystick on it and uh you know my boss said he says you know we can't we can't really reproduce this so you know why don't you see what you can do and and uh and design a joystick
0: what why couldn't you reproduce that is it too difficult
2: um you know i do, i i think it um a couple of things i think uh, for whatever reason, the, um, thematically it didn't—you know—it wasn't uh, futuristic, right? It was an F4 joystick, and uh, the game was a space game, and there were uh, so there were some aesthetic concerns, and there was also, um, you know, the fact that we just we had to. Dave didn't really have to worry about production. He could essentially mock something up, and so all the stuff that came in from there was not ready for production. It was a long way from ready for production. It was basically. Um, you know, like the, that joystick was like, I think he, he got a real one and he made a casting of it and put it on the prototype and then sent it over to Midway. So it was not something that you could, you know, turn the key on and, and go out and get, uh, you know, um, 100,000 of these things molded. Hmm. So we would basically, a lot, of, a lot of the designers on the outside, even the captive houses, they didn't have to worry about making the stuff reproducible. Um, they basically just had to somehow uh, mock up the concept and uh get everybody to sign off on it and of course the games would be tested. Sometimes they would be tested with prototype ports and, and stuff like that. Uh right. and our it was our job to uh, make the stuff real, so to speak. So um anyway, uh the, the three guys that I mentioned or the two guys that I mentioned, uh Tish Ghosh and and um, uh, Bill Adams um, you know we kind of kept uh trying you know we kept talking about you know how do we do this how do we get down, you know how do we get one of our ideas in the pipe and um, um, you know bill was uh uh relentless at uh you know he he just kept programming uh and and making uh sample mock up things and the, the the he never got anyone to pay any attention to it um, the strength of the strength of our little group, and Atish was a hardware designer, and he kept coming up with, you know, he would show up and say, "Okay, I can, you know, I can give you 4,096 colors, but you can only use 16." And, uh, <laughs> you know, nobody knew what to do with that. Um, so the, the 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 magic was putting it all together. You know, the magic was uh, the three of us getting together and actually doing a game. And so um, the very first game that we actually got into production with a game called Satan's Hollow which uh, I don't know if you know
0: Oh yeah I remember it.
2: Okay. So, I, I
0: mean it wasn't a huge
2: and I did uh, oh, it, it wasn't
0: a huge hit like Satron but it, I remember the game.
2: Nowhere near. Uh nowhere near. I think uh, we we um we really uh, screwed up with uh, putting Satan in the name because uh, if I recall all the salesmen complained that we didn't sell a single game of the Bible belt and, and you know it was
1: <laughs> different
2: different times different mores, and you know so um, yeah, so I did all the bird patterns. I mean, when we started making games, you know, we would—I literally would do pixel art by coloring in, um, you know, graph paper, and and then uh, a data entry person would take and you know she would make you know all the vertical columns numbers and all the horizontal colors letters and you know A1 was a blue pixel and uh, and so it was fairly primitive um, and years later uh Atish the guy that I referred to uh who designed uh the hardware that we shipped uh, Tron and and eventually um uh, Spy Hunter Spy Hunter was actually a modification of that hardware because we didn't have scrolling hardware and uh, I was a huge Defender fan and so I kept you know just by by then we were actually uh, we had become a legitimate um, uh, game team inside the company and so uh, when I went to Spy Hunter, I started jumping up and down for a scrolling hardware, and um a guy named Kerry Metnick, uh, who was at Williams all through the, uh, through the height of pinball, etc., doing electronic systems, uh, took the, what we call the Midway Card Rack 2, the MCR 2, which is in Tron and a bunch of other games, Satan right. Hollow and uh, numerous other games, and he, uh, uh, redesigned it so it would scroll, and um, and so,
0: uh... Yeah, you mean by scroll, you mean... First off, a lot of people don't know what MCR... MCR was like this card rack where it had, like, five or six cards that plugged into this thing. Yeah. Uh,
2: midway card rack system. And, yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, GORF used it, for example. Uh, actually,
2: GORF used um, MCR-1. Uh, right, right. Yeah. And uh, the Tron hardware was different. It was... Um, the Tron hardware was Atish's, uh tour de force, if you will, and... Um, uh, what he did is uh, <clears throat> he had a patent. He had come up with a thing called a double-line buffer, which allowed, he had a patent on it, and it allowed us to use um, a bazillion moving, uh, small moving objects. We called them picture blocks. The industry calls them sprites. Um, the midway term at the time was picture blocks. So you had these 32-pixel by 32-pixel sprites, if you will, and you had a lot of them on a foreground plane, and that was basically all your interactive stuff. And then you had um, uh, a, a, an art page at roughly half that resolution, 16 by 16 pixel blocks. That, uh, pixel picture blocks that did not lend themselves to moving. And those picture blocks were used to create static art. So, for example, in Satan's Hollow, all the birds are in the in the in the front in the you know um, um, in the foreground plane. And all of the cast, the castle, and the scenery, and all that stuff, is in the background playing. Hmm. So, anyway, uh, so um, Spy Hunter, um, I had gone to uh, the company as a kind of a reward. It was a big, uh, it was a big reward at the time. Uh, they would pick uh, five or six guys, and they would send us to the JAMA show, which was a big video game show in Japan. And um, it was a big, it was a big deal to go. And so I, you know, they sent me to Japan. And, and when I was in Japan, I bought a, a cassette tape. Um, Walkman had just come out, and I bought a cassette tape and a Walkman uh, of uh, James Bond's greatest hits. And I'm, I'm a big James Bond fan, so I was listening to this on the way back, and uh, uh, coincidentally, Bill Adams was on my case about, you know, we need to come up with another game. And, you know, what should it be? Should it be a driving game or what should it be? And, and so I just kind of um, listening to this James Bond tape, I thought, you know, hey, you know, um, it's a car with a lot of weapons. And uh, I was kind of getting into the whole the zen of driving music, if you will. Um, hmm. and, and that's what generated the when you get weapons, you have music. When you don't have weapons, you don't have music huh. idea, which uh, somehow has been lost. To the, um, the guys that have carried on the spy hunter name in, in uh, all of the current uh, iterations of the product, which, by the way, I've had nothing to do with. Um, but um, uh, so this whole notion of uh, driving music and um, this car with a lot of weapons is where it all began. So I had a roll of uh, um, you know 18 inch 18 inch roll of uh, tracing paper because you know back then we did a lot of stuff with paper and pen. And pencil and stuff and markers and so I drew this. Um, I drew this road. I just kept unrolling the, the the roll and drawing the road. And when I had an interesting road, um, I started uh, populating the road with uh, the enemies and the and you know all of the different things that could happen to the car as it as it pro- as you progress through the game. Helicopter, you know, the helicopter's going to bomb you and. You know these big cars are gonna come knock you, try to knock you off, and die on a motorcycle. And eventually, um, and um, uh, right around that time, also influenced by the trip to Japan, Transformers um, had just come out in Japan, but they were they were not here yet um, in the States. And everywhere I went in Japan, there was like plastic robots. I mean, it was like I would be standing in line at a restaurant with a bowl of noodles to pay for my noodles, and there would be a stack of robots for sale at the counter of the restaurant. I mean, it was, it was the most bizarre thing. Um, and so, um, you know, we just kind of got to thinking, there was a guy named, uh, there was an artist on staff called, uh, a guy named Steve Olstad, and, and Steve um, was a guy that, he, I mean, he's the guy that, you know, said, hey, you know, uh, I had the, I had the car going into a, into a vehicle, into a, into a building, and the car would come out of boat. Um, and, and in his head, he said, you know, um, you know, transform the car. And uh, to me, it was like, you know, I thought, you, you know, we had pulled into the, pulled into the barn and, and left with the boat, you know, left the car and took off with oh, of the boat. Right,
0: right. Yeah, you, he, you didn't convert it. You
2: transformed the car. Yeah. So, um, so that's how the car got to transform, and, um, uh so so anyway we you know we did we started doing games um, before Spy Hunter we actually had done Tron that had really gotten us the uh notoriety. And Tron was an interesting project because Tron was um, uh licensed with a license that Tom Neiman um, one of the very first guys that did any kind of probably the first guy that did any kind of licensing in the pinball business. Tom Neiman was the the Bally la- licensing guy. And, um, he, you know, he's, he's talked at numerous, uh, um, That's pinball cool. events in the last few years and stuff. So Tom Neiman had gone to Hollywood and brought back the Tron license. And, um, nobody knew what it was and he dropped off scripts. And, um, we looked at the scripts and Bill said, this is our ticket. You know, this is what we gotta do. We gotta do this game. And the company had, had, without even having a game, the deal that Tom had made with Disney was that, when the movie launched, the game had to be on the street. And um, to further complicate things, the company, at the time, the company owned, um, Valley owned Empire Distributing, and they owned um, uh, um, Aladdin's Castle Arcades. And right. So the game uh, had to be in all of the, you know, they decided they were going to have this uh, competition at all the Aladdin's Castles. <laughs> And uh, so every Aladdin's castle was going to get a Tron. And um,
0: so you were under amazing time constraint.
2: Um, Grand Finale was going to happen in um, in New York, in Madison Square Garden, a playoff of basically the you know like the top twenty five kids from throughout the country, which we went to and it was great fun. But first, we had to get the right to do Tron. I mean, we were just this no name R and D group that had you know had a minor, very very minor success with. Satans Hollow. I mean, they used to laugh at us because, you know, I don't know. We made maybe ten thousand Satans Hollows or something, and so you know, the company had just come off of a run of whatever seventy thousand Space Invaders and who knows how many you know Galaxians and you know it was so. So the in-house guys, honestly, we were just you know we were small time, Um, but they had this. So they they said, okay, we're going to open this competition up to the three R&D groups, basically, and and the two big Kahuna R&D groups um, were Dave Nutting and Arcade Engineering, and um, and then our group. And um, so uh, my first uh, my first industry all nighter, if you will, was um, we we actually made created a presentation for to try to get the Tron, you know, project. And uh, I made storyboards, which I still have, of what all the game waves should be. And we'd been working on We'd read the scripts and worked on it for a few weeks. But the night before the presentation, I was up all night with this storyboards for all the games and all the games that you know. And by the way, this of Tron was actually the fifth wave in the original Tron. A lot of people don't know that. And we just um, uh, ran out of time and couldn't do it. So we, it became... We had very little memory at the time, and so it was, it was just a really, an incredible job to just even get that, uh, get it into the game, let alone design it in time.
0: Environmental Discs of Tron, did you have anything to do with that?
2: Yeah, I did. You know, we were pretty excited about, um, I mean, Tron sold like, uh, you know, a ton of games. I mean, like, you know, I don't know, 35,000 units or something. Um, so it was, it was a pretty big hit for us, and um, we were excited um this of Tron uh, was being programmed by a guy named Bob Dinnerman. Um, and um, I was working with him on, um, you know, trying to figure out how to make the thing work. Uh, at, at the time, you, you remember, we had very little in the way of hardware to um, to do these things. At, at, at that time, we were still thinking that it was going to be the fifth wave in Tron. Uh, and finally, one day, he just came to me and he said, you know what? He says, we've got to make the room real because I can't fake the math. And so, um, so then I redrew the room, and the minute that I redrew the room into um, a real one-point perspective of the room, uh, the um, you know the 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 game basically just didn't fit with the rest of you know the rest of the waves and Tron, so it became a standalone game. And we said, okay, it'll be the sequel, and uh, we were very excited about it. Um, but at the time, all of the um, you know I I'd mentioned to you that. Uh, that dave nutting was pioneering a lot of 3d stuff and and he was working on a 3d vector um you know vector graphics based game uh flying game and um that game was really pretty much stealing uh, all of our thunder and um we thought you know let's that's um you know we had such great success with uh with tron let's try to blow it out and uh we'll do um uh, you know, we'll do two versions. And so we basically came up with the, the notion of the environmental. Uh, sales guys used to kid me that, um, you know, in Japan they had those very small condos that like, you know, at airports or whatever. It was basically a sleeping berth.
1: Hmm.
2: And uh, the sales guys used to kid me that when, you know, when they couldn't sell these things, they were going to turn them into uh, these uh, <laughs> Japanese condos, uh, sleeping berths. <laughs> um, so we, so the, the thing was designed Um, to just, um, you know, you remember that there was like, um, um, a lot of, uh, science fiction at the time was, um, was hinting at virtual reality and, and all of that stuff was becoming a buzzword. Uh, and, um, so we said you know, let's, let's, um, let's see if we can create uh, a sexier effect. And we knew that it was only going to be, you know, the thing was huge. So it was only going to, uh, end up in, um, in like the big, the big huge family entertainment center type arcades and um, uh so it was basically a standard it was a, the the front end was just a standard tron um, or or Distotron, and then the the environmental part was uh, basically grafted onto the front of it um, and it had uh you know it had all my black light tricks and it had um, i had um, like some uh, fluorescent uh, uh uh rings painted on the or or um, a filter screen on the bottom of the on the floor of the cabinet and it had uh you know it had a, a thumper speaker in your butt and and all these uh um, you know every effect we could possibly throw at it um, at one time I don't think we produced them with this, but at one time I had a prototype running that had a, a strobe light in it huh. and uh yeah you you know you you'd take a hit from a disc and the strobe light would um, fire off
1: and uh um,
2: so yeah, I think that uh this um, uh, Tron was—you uh, know—we didn't make very many of them. I mean, I think they're they're out
1: there somewhere.
0: Yeah, I would have thought that designing Tron would be difficult because it was basically multiple—you know—at least four different video games. You see, you had the spiders, you had the tanks, you had all—you know—you had the the light rays. You always had the thing that we loved is when you when you beat the light ray thing, you could spin your arm around like Pete Townsend of the Who. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs>
2: Well, you know, the um, ah, you make me laugh at that stuff. Yeah. Um,
0: Oh, it was a big hit. That was the only reason we wanted to complete that wave.
2: Yeah, Uh, midway at the time, the the guy who was the vice president of engineering, this guy named Marty Kane. Marty Kane had a PhD um, in uh, mathematics and electrical engineering and all kinds of other things. And when I made the, I proposed the control set with the, you know, the the spinning disc and the uh, joystick. Uh, and uh, I'll never forget, Marty said to me during the presentation that, uh, he says, translation and rotation are incredibly difficult to do simultaneously, kind of like rubbing your stomach and patting your head. And I, <laughs> I said, okay, um, we'll see what happens. And uh, um, we just kind of kept going in that direction, and we managed to pull it off. So
0: yeah it's a great a great game i mean i i for the longest time i had a, a, the cocktail version of it in in my in my basement. I just recently kind of dumped all my video games though
1: yeah. well,
2: the, um you know the thing about that uh, that game too is that um because we had to have it done in such a short period of time um, well actually let me get to the part where we actually got to do it um, so um we were essentially in competition with Dave nutting in arcade engineering and bill. Uh, Atish and I really took this to heart because we thought, you know, so we, we did, you know, we went out of our way to, um, spend, we spent a lot of time, Atish had the MCR2 system designed and working, but it had not really been exercised on much other than Satan's Hollow. And nobody was picking it up and saying we want to make our next game on it. So it was essentially going to be a, it was going to be a dead system if no designer wanted to design a game on it. And, um, Dave Nutting used to, was famous for doing the absolute bleeding edge of um, of technology um, when he did his games, and his games were very forward-looking. I mean, he was into 3D long before um, anyone else, and uh, he was into a lot of things, but the stuff took a long time to go from that level of refine you know, that level, uh, the concept level, to the production level. And so there was, we used to laugh that uh, uh, Dave was a great showman, and, uh, you know, they would bring in They'd bring you into a dark room, and you know, you know, uh or playing, and you know, you they sit you down in this, you know, in this uh, uh, Recaro seat out of one of Dave's sports cars, and there's all these controls around you, and and uh, you know, there's and then behind the scenes, sort of Wizard of Oz like, there's five guys with cold spray, you know, spraying down chips so that the thing doesn't, you know, self-destruct during the presentation. <laughs> And so we we kind of knew. Okay, Dave's going to promise the world. I don't think they, I don't think it's going to happen in the time that we have. And um, arcade engineering, um, we we they were basically a vector house. You know, they were they had uh, they had reverse engineered the asteroids hardware to produce Omega Race, and and um, you know they were essentially a vector house. And we thought, you know what, we can do something with a hardware set that's solid, it's stable. Uh, yeah nobody knows it, but we know it and um, and so that's what we proposed and I think on the on the strengths that that they they looked at us and they they saw a tremendous amount of enthusiasm when we made the presentation Arcade and Dave showed up and all they did was arm wave. They, there was nothing to show and we had storyboards and you know cabinet designs and a hardware set that with some stuff moving on the screen and all this kind of stuff and I think that is what got us the job.
0: So you had prototype software. I'm sorry? You had prototypes prototype software written on the M C R two.
2: Yes. Hmm. Yes. Moving you know, moving objects, doing stuff, et cetera, colliding and doing things. Um, and I had um, you know I had a how the joysticks came about is I had a uh, uh I had a sample of the Gorf one and we were having trouble with uh, we were having trouble with one of the um, some of the internal uh, mechanism inside the joystick, and I had asked the vendor to uh, mold me a clear one. I said, you know, mold me a clear one. I want to see what's going on inside that thing. Because we couldn't, you know, we had been struggling with, there was a field, there was a field complaint from GORF um, about some of the switches, and, and we, we just, I'm like, you know, we couldn't figure it out, because it was kind of pretty simple technology, a leaf switch and a, you know, molded uh, trigger, and we were like, you know, what the hell? So I asked this vendor, the guy who made the joysticks. I said, "Hey, instead of running uh the black ABS, can you could you possibly shoot some clear styrene in that thing and and just kind of give me a you know, give me 20 pieces or whatever that I can fool around with?" And he said, "Yeah, sure." So um, he shot me some clear ones and I had them sitting on my desk and I was fooling around with the black light because all the Tron stuff um, we had seen some uh, we had seen some early um Concept stuff from the movie guys, and all the stuff was glowing. And um, so I was messing around with a black light and some, you know, fluorescent paints to make stuff in the game glow. And um, and I had the joystick sitting there, and I was about to turn off the lights to go home one night, and uh, I had forgotten I had left a black light on. And I and I flipped the light switch in my office, and as I was about to close the door, I looked back at my office, and this this joystick was. Glowing blue, uh, sitting on my desk. Um, you know, one of the clear ones that I had asked for, so that I could kind of reverse engineer the, the the issue with the switch. And uh, I turned right back around, went back in, and started messing with it. And in the morning, I called everybody in to a room with this thing with the black light, and voila! The the you know everybody said, oh, "Wow, it glows just like the blue guys in the movie." So. You know, it was a happy accident. <laughs> a very, very happy accident. Um, so, um, anyway, so we got to do the game, and we hustled. Uh, it was a weird development um, scenario, a scenario that's actually very common today, where we, we took every wave in the game and um, and assigned it to a different programmer. So, for example, the guy that did the tank wave, which is which is my favorite, it was the one that I that I uh, was most in love with because I had. You know, I mentioned to you that i uh, had been obsessed in college with the that ten, the top you down tank game, and so I wanted to I always wanted to make one of those and hmm. so when I did the maze uh you know and I came up with a thing that where you shot you know your shot basically could shoot around corners and eventually expire right okay well, the guy who programmed that for me, a guy named Tom leone who um by the way was also Cuban, and uh as as i am and um uh, and so him and I went on to do Spy Hunter. He is the programmer of Spy Hunter, which everybody always asks me about. And so huh. um, basically, but Spy Hunter, um, a lot of people at the end, uh, towards the very end, a lot of people in the business worked on it. Uh, a lot of people that are still in the business worked on it, um, on the arts especially, and, and tuning the game, but, um
0: But Now, what about the Spy Hunter pinball? You had nothing to do with that? Spy
2: least? Hunter pin- pinball is an interesting story. Um, you know, I get bored all the time, and um, and so I um, um, and for that reason, I think I think every five, six, uh, you know, sometimes it's been seven years. I I kind of I design something else, or I, I I go into design something else. You know, that's how I, I designed toys for Marvin Glass and Associates for about five years, and I was at Midway originally about seven years, and my first uh, tour of duty. Um, and the pinball thing was always interesting to me. Um, and so, um uh, I wanted to do um with the success of spy hunter they they wanted to the company wanted to leverage the the property, and they said, you know, let's make spy hunter pinball and um but you know I was not i mean the pinball guys didn't know who I was and uh nor care and and um you know pinball was a pinball designers was was it, you know they were basically the first rock star designers in our business um they um they were the first guys that, you know, that early on they had employment contracts because they were so uh, they were so um, revered that, you know, they didn't want to, uh, you know, um, Stern to steal a Valley guy or Valley to steal a Williams guy, etc. So those guys were uh, at that time. It was Jimmy Patla, Greg Kimick, um, you know, all of those guys from that era. And uh, and Greg got the assignment to do Spy Hunter Pinball. And I I went to see my boss, and I said, hey, you know, you think I can do something with uh, Spy Hunter Pinball? And I said, sure, just, you know, go talk to the designer, okay? So I walk into Greg's office, and I, I man, I, I'll tell you, I said two words to the guy. I got the chilliest reception I've ever gotten. So <laughs> I walked out of there going, okay, I, I, this isn't going to happen. You know, this guy's not going to let me do anything relative to this <laughs> pinball. And, um... um and I, you know, I regret that to this day. I, I, I would love to do a Spy Hunter pinball, um, and and as I think it should be done. Um, if it
0: makes you feel any better, the Spy Hunter pinball kind of sucks.
2: Yeah, I, yeah, and and I think it's again, it goes back to, you know, it it was, uh you know, there was that era where the stuff inside the box had nothing to do with the theme, and. Uh, you know it was kind of like that thing you could have splashed any kind of art on it, and it could have been whatever
0: right right there was no there was no relationship between the actual pinball
2: made it spy hunter and and right. uh, I think that uh that's significant you know i mean I think that's significant relative to its failure um and i and i you know I'm a big proponent in my in my pinball games I've always been a pro- big proponent to to you know let's let's bring the you know let's tie the entire thing together you know it, it all has to hang together the fiction everything has to be consistent it it um, and when it's not you get you know you get spy hunter pinball right so um so yeah so i didn't i got a pretty chilly reception there i didn't get to do anything with that uh it was it was about the end of my run at midway anyway i was um i was uh, getting very disheartened because the business was was just sucking so badly. It was 1984, and everything was going in the toilet. Everything but Spy Hunter was going in the toilet. And um, Spy Hunter, I mean, you know what? We were just a bunch of guys working on Spy Hunter with no deadline, no no um, delivery dates, no nothing, no no even recognition from management that this was at, that this game was happening. And things were sucking so bad. They were down to like 100 games a day. That big massive you know, manufacturing monster that had gone, you know, just a few years before with cranking out 1,100 video games a day and, you know, uh, making anything and everything, novelties, uh, pinball, you know, the, the, the kitchen sink had gone down to 100 games a day and every, every week was a new layoff and, um, and some, you know, uh, Stan Jiraki or some, you know, who was running marketing at the time, you know, came down into our lab and said, what, what is this thing? You uh, know, it's, you know, Spy Hunter and, um, we originally, we actually ran the game, by the way, for the first six months with the James Bond music from that tape that I bought in Japan, and and, and Tommy Neiman couldn't get the license; it was ridiculously expensive. So it was Tom Neiman who, who, actually suggested the Spy Hunter theme, or what we know of as the Spy Hunter theme, which is the Peter Gunn theme, right. from the Peter Gunn TV show. And uh, we hated it at first, uh, and then it grew on us. And um, and so, and my whole thing about, you know, let's let's get give him music when he has weapons. No music when he doesn't have weapons, uh, to kind of reinforce the whole, you know, it's, it's the whole make the player feel like a million bucks when he's doing well. Um, right. Which, you, which we try to do in every game. I mean, we try to do it today when I make video games, and we try to do it in pinball machines and, and the whole thing. You know, it's, it's all about, when you're sucking, it's got to feel like it's not your fault and you can recover. And when you're doing great, you've got to feel like you're on top of the world. And it's, it, the game designer that pulls that off is a game designer that, that stands a chance to make a successful product. The sound guys back then were not the sound guys as we know them today. You know, a sound guy today is a guy with a music degree or, you know, or... Uh, uh, it doesn't come from the technology side. He typically comes from the, the artistic music side. You know, because they're composers. They score games just like you score a, a film. But back in the day... Um, the guy with the power was the guy that could manipulate the technology, and so a lot of our early sound guys were uh, you know a guy who was gigging in a band but also was like into programming or electronics or something like that anyway i don 't know where I was i was I guess I was talking about uh, well, you were
0: talking about the exodus from midway to
1: uh,
2: so the business was pretty shitty, and uh, um, a couple of years before um a company called Marvin Glass and Associates, the, the most famous, um, basically toy invention firm in the world, um, had come to Midway and uh, said, "You know, we want to make video games because they kind of saw the uh,
1: explosion of video
2: games." Uh, and uh, and they would come in with um, they would come in with ideas on in storyboard form on paper, and the company said, "You know, hey, you know, these are all really nice, but." The reality is um, uh you know they, they, they these are the guys that did um, uh Roopier Capper and uh and Domino Man and games like that. Right. And uh um, what was that uh one where the animals switched hats uh Wacko. So um, uh anyway, the so Marvin Glass and Associates how they got into business was they were this invention house. They um, they were the big Kahuna of invention houses. They had a, they had a reputation um, for consistently delivering successful products to the toy business. They had basically they were the Who's Who of toy design, and um, and they came. They wanted to do video games, and um, the company said, "Okay, that's all fine, but the only way we can really, you know, give your ideas a tumble is if you actually develop the games. You bring us games that, because you know the timing and the feeling and you know all of that stuff is." Just not perceptible from a drawn storyboard on a piece of paper. Right. So, um, Bill Adams by then had risen to he was running the software group, and um, and we had all kind of uh, advanced at midway. You know, I had my own little development group, and Atish was doing his own thing, and 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 so by then we had Tron under our belts, and etc. And um, and then um, uh, so. They assigned us to help Marvin Glass come up to speed, so you know teach him teach him our hardware, teach him our tools etc and um, Bill was very threatened by this you know because it was kind of like the victory to get our own gig had been hard fought and um, um, you know he considered these guys like a real threat but um, you know it, it didn 't bring out the best in him let 's put it this way so so a lot of stuff would go over to um, Marvin Glass, and it wouldn't quite work, you know. And there'd be some poor guy at Marvin Glass. By the way, those poor guys at Marvin Glass are the guys that currently, uh, you know, evolved into incredible technologies. Uh, uh, Elaine and Richard Ditton were both there at the time, uh, working on game on the very games that I'm talking about. So, um,
0: yeah, and IT was uh, they, they developed the software for the first 80s, pinballs too.
2: Yes, yes. So it's you know I guess it's a it's a very small world, but. Um, uh Scott Morrison was uh, is uh, one of the artists is, art director at uh IT is uh, uh his father uh Howard Morrison was one of the partners at Marvin Glass and Associates and um, it was Howard that was my contact uh, when I wanted to get a job at Marvin Glass after leaving um, Midway so what so what happened is uh, the business was crashing and um, the Marvin. I called one day. I said, "You know, I think I want to design toys. I think that'd be cool." So I pick up the phone. I call Howard. Hey, Howard. I'm I'm still at Midway, but uh, things around here are really sucking. Every uh, we we were in this um, we were in this horrible mode. We had been bought. Valley uh, uh, had been uh, senior management at Valley had changed hands, and they had brought in a bunch of these GE guys, GE management guys. They were all about acquisitions. It was the it was the buzzword of the '80s, and they they basically took and squandered. The, the video game war chest. Um, you know, in 1982, Midway. The Midway division was a $500 million company. If you just looked at the Midway division, um, without anything else, so they were bigger than the mother company. Uh, but yet, the mother company was holding the purse strings and calling the shots. Hmm. So um, these GE guys wanted to buy. You know, they went out and did all kinds of silly stuff. You know, they bought Lancer yachts, and because you know, they said we we're an entertainment company, and some clown. At the top had a had a Jones for yachts, and so they bought a yacht company, and they bought Six Flags over America, and they bought uh, uh, Chicago health clubs, and they bought uh, Life Fitness uh, health equipment, you know. And so, and this was uh, this was all bought with the, the Midway video game money from. Uh, so they had squandered the war chest, and and then basically told Midway oh, yeah, you know, uh, you don't have any money in the bank, basically. You know, you guys have to fend for yourselves. And so if if you're making 100 games a day now, you're going to compress your your staff to reflect that. Um, you are not going to uh, pretend that, you know, you have access to some, some rainy day money here because, you know, we're doing other things. We're growing in different areas. If your business is crashing, then, you know, tough shit. Your business is crashing.
1: Hmm. So... Um,
2: so at Midway, there was this—you uh, know—I called it. You know, it was like every 30 days, uh, you know, my boss would call me up to his office and say, "Listen, you know, you got to find X amount of dollars in your budget. X amount of dollars in my budget was basically meant I had to lay off some people. So I'd lay off some people, and then the layoff would happen, and he would say, "Okay, let's uh, let's have a pizza party and let's rally everybody, and we're back in it. Okay, all right, good. Yes. So we did that." After you do that three or four times you start going, you know So
0: Yeah, there's not enough pizza in the world to make this work.
2: No, I mean it's just yeah, it's just, it gets a little old. And and so everything was compressing around us and I I said, you know what, I am I'm, I'm just I'm not gonna beat the last I'm just not gonna be there. And um I had um one of my early mentors uh in game design was Hank Ross, the guy who co founded Midway. And Hank was Ah, uh, peripherally involved at the time. He was semi-retired. well, he was retired basically. He would, he, but he was uh, on on the payroll, I think, as an advisor to Dave Marosty, the president of Midway. And uh, Hank was one of my biggest fans. And uh, I, you know, I talked to him and I said, uh, "What do you think?" And he said, "He said, you know, he said, as long as I'm around, you can have a job here. You don't have to worry about that." And I said, "Yeah, Hank, it's not about that. It's about you know." And you know, he basically. Said yeah, he says you know I, I see your point and he said nobody's gonna think the worst for you if you split so you know do what you got to do and um, and so I um I started looking I called Howard Morrison at uh, Marvin Glass and said Howard I want to design games he said okay get a portfolio together come in for an interview we'll see what we can do and luckily I was the one guy that had not fucked with them when they were trying to do trying to learn stuff I had actually helped them so um uh. You know they didn't have any issues with me, and um, um, and so uh you know they gave me a job. And and I, I I went to see my boss and I said, you know that money you're looking for, I got you in your budget. He said yeah, and I said well I said I've got some good news and some bad news. Said, the good news is I found your money. The bad news is I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so I split. Um, and. Um, and then did toys for five years. I loved Marvin Glass. It was a tremendous experience. It was another shark pool. It was, uh, it was really, I could have never survived the Williams shark pool had I not done time in the Marvin Glass shark pool. <laughs> um, because the, it, the same kind of, uh, uh, just a different species of shark, but shark nonetheless. All
1: right. So...
2: Um, you know the 30 designers at uh, Marvin Glass and 30 model makers, and the, the place was a license to print money because they had done uh, Lightright operation, uh, you know, you name it. I mean, every, you know, hands down, uh, every every no every famous toy, you know, Simon, every famous toy had been done there, and and so um, success was basically uh you know, there were 29, if you were, there were 30 designers on the staff, and, you know, there, that meant that, that, that 29 guys wanted your head. So um, uh, after uh, that shark pool totally prepared me for what I was going to, you know, what I was going to encounter when I landed it uh, in the Williams Engineering Department in uh, 1993.
0: Well, now, how did you get to Williams? What was, uh, how did that go? Well,
2: after, um, in, um in, uh, the partners at marvin glass um, they had this uh, they had a dispute amongst themselves and they um, they could not resolve it and uh, basically uh they dissolved the company and, and they split off into what the toy industry um, referred to afterwards as broken glass it was all these little splinter design groups um, a couple of big ones and then a bunch of little ones that to, to this day they are the the all of those little splinter groups are the face of the toy business Um, and you know your buddy can tell you some of that some of this story he'll confirm a lot of the stuff i'm saying
0: yeah he was at meyer glass which closed a year ago
2: (laughs) right so meyer glass was uh steve meyer who actually was one of the programmers on some of those very games that i talked about when when marvin glass started uh making video games and uh and steve uh went you know steve went on to run um, Meyer Glass and Bert Meyer, his father, was also a partner at Marvin Glass. So it's, it's all a, a very, very uh, close-knit little circle. Um, so that, yeah, um, Meyer Glass was a spin-off, Was one of those splinter groups that happened after the breakup of Marvin Glass. So, so when uh, Marvin Glass broke up, I had been doing. I was about to get married. It was, uh, uh, I think, it was 1984. I was about to get married. I just bought. Um, I just bought a two flat in Evanston in anticipation of moving into it with my wife and, uh, uh my wife to be. And, uh, you know, I had a, I had a 1985 Corvette and I, you know, I had all this stuff in my life and I had, I was out of a job. So I, okay, I gotta go, you know, I gotta go figure something out. And, uh, I had been, uh, in anticipation of, uh, of my wedding, I had been getting work from Dave Morovsky at Brand Products uh, on the side. And, uh, Dave had, uh, uh, had, was the president of Midway during all those, all those years. He did the, you know, Pac-Man deal and all that stuff. And, uh, Dave, um, I called Dave one day and I said, uh, uh, hey Dave, I'm getting married in June and, uh, you know, my wife, my wife's vision of this, vision of this wedding is like Barbie's wedding and, uh, (laughs) it's going to cost me a bazillion dollars and I need some money and, and so, uh, uh, send me any work you have and, um. Uh he was starting up this little uh manufacturing company called Grand Products. And uh, that, uh is still still alive. They're not so little anymore. They build basically all of Eugene Jarvis's product and they build uh IT's product and you know they have become a, a big a big kahuna in the business. Um, and I love those guys, they're a very successful bunch of guys uh currently and uh, so um I uh Dave started feeding me work, and Dave's designer at the time was uh, Dave was trying to do some stuff with Dave Nutting. Uh, Dave Nutting, you know, after when 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 uh, Midway went through its 1984 compression cycle, one of the things that got lopped off was uh, Dave Nutting and Associates, and so Dave had disbanded his little group, um, um, and and uh, which incidentally is how Pat ended up at Williams. <laughs> Sort of, uh, in a roundabout way. And so, uh, cause Pat was working at Dave Nutting, uh, when they he closed the doors. So, and he had to go find work. And, uh, the roundabout way hooked up with Larry DeMar, et cetera, and, and ended up, uh, ended up, uh, at Willie.
0: Yeah, they were on the same bowling team or something. Exactly, like
2: with that. Joey, and yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, and the Dittons, and so the Dittens, I think, had some Brunswick, uh, work, and coincidentally, and, and I, there's some connection there to Brunswick. Bowling people, and um, so um, uh, Dave or, or so Dave Nutting was designing a game for uh, Dave Murawski, uh at Grand Products on an Amiga, and the um, the idea was to put Amigas. Amiga would be the hardware set that would go into the actual game, and so they had bought a bazillion Amiga 1000s, and they were literally bolting them into cabinets <laughs> to run the software of the game, and the software was being done by the Dittons. Uh, Dave Nutting was designing the game, and, uh, and I, I was basically trying to get that thing into production, uh, drawing whatever they needed me to draw. So he was like, you know, you know, I need a periscope. Okay, I've done a periscope before, here's a periscope. And so just, uh, I took on whatever work I could get. When the doors closed at Marvin Glass, I called, I had called Dave right away, had lunch with him one day, and said, hey, you better ramp this up because this is no longer about Barbie's wedding. This is about, uh, you know, this is about uh, I need a job. So Dave said, well, I can't afford you, you know, full time, but uh, I'll give you a place to work and you just come here and, and, and do your thing. So so I went and um, and started uh, beating the bushes for work and I picked up a bunch of the guys that I used to work with at Midway. So there were, there were like four or five guys and I started uh, trying to drum up work and uh, I came up with a bunch of things. Uh, through the Dittons, I got involved in the um, FASA uh, Battletech Centers. Uh, they had had a couple of uh, uh, false starts with other designers in terms of designing the pods for the Battletech Center and the environments for the Battletech Center. And so, um, Richard Ditton was in my office one day at Grand Products and he saw that I had a Battletech poster on, on the wall and he said, BattleTech. What do you know about BattleTech? And I said, nothing. I just, I'm just into the fiction. Um, you know, I like the robots and, and the game and stuff. And he said, oh my God. He said, you know, you're the perfect guy for this. So uh, he hooked, you know, he hooked me up with the FOSA guys, and I, I took on this uh, the BattleTech Center project, and I hired um, four of the guys that I used to work with at Midway to help me, and um, we were off and running. Um, I quickly. Figured out that it was it was really thankless work because um, all of my you know all of my creativity was essentially had to go through the FASA filter and so it was kind of like if those guys didn't like it it was just not going to happen and it was a it was a tighter filter than I was used to and so uh, I started and and the, and the work for Dave Morosky was very boring it was like you know Dave's manufacturing the next Sega game it was the 80s and it was the late 80s and uh, we thought the Japanese were going to rule the world, and, and they were sending over software. It was too expensive to uh, send over entire fully built cabinets and games, and not to mention that none of the materials that they design in were available in this country. So um, it never ceases to amaze me that you know I would get some marketing guy over here from Sega or Namco or whoever, and he would say to me. Well, here's the Japanese drawing set, and um, you turn the key and make this thing. I don't understand why you have to redesign all this stuff. The the reason you have to redesign it is because the Japanese work with metric material. The entire thing is designed with metric material. The dimensions of 15-millimeter plywood, 15-millimeter piece of plywood is not a three-quarter inch piece of plywood. Now, we could do two things. We could order all of these materials stateside, which at the time were not readily available. Uh, or you can redesign it with domestic materials, but every one of these dimensions is different because ten millimeters is not three eighths of an inch it's close, but close when you get all these parts together is not going to work
1: right.
2: so they would pay me a lot of money to do this, and it, they always paid well, uh, but it was really boring work. I mean it was really really boring work you know and you know nothing like arguing with the guy at Jallico about how no one in the United States of America referred to San Francisco as Cisco. They did a game called Cisco Heat, and I talked till I was blue in the face with this guy, going, "No one's going to know what you're talking about, dude. Really, Cisco? No one calls San Francisco Cisco. It was a Miami Vice ripoff, you know, and it was called Cisco Heat. I can never, uh, I'll never forget. You know, um, never did, did they ship the game called Cisco Heat. <laughs>
0: <It's> like, <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break from talking with George Gomez, and we'll be right back after this message. Hey, George, I just had to call and tell you about this really great magazine I got. It's called the Pin Game Journal, and it's the only magazine dedicated totally to pinball. It's got great articles and interviews with designers and everything. No, George, I won't loan you my copy. Who knows where you'll take it to? You're going to have to go to pingamejournal.com. And get your own subscription. But George, the guy says that each issue will get mailed whenever he feels like it. What's the deal with that? All right, George, I gotta go. Gotta call Elaine and tell her. I can't believe how good this magazine is. Okay, we're back with George Gomez and some of more of his design stories.
2: I was always trying to pitch ideas, and so I did uh, some ideas for uh, uh, Gil Pollock, uh, pinball features. Um, you know, that's how I got to know Ray Tanzer. Um, and, uh, and and all those guys over there. Um, so they would come up with a thing, you know, hey, we think it would be cool if, if you could get a pinball to walk up the stairs. And I, I would make a, a little plastic working model of a pinball walking up the stairs. You could put a pinball on it, hook it up to a 12-volt motor, and the, the pinball would walk up the stairs. Hey, I think it would be cool if uh, we could do this, and... In the meantime, I started throwing in my own, you know, zingers. You know, here's uh, what do you think about this? You know, here's the monster. He lives underneath the play field, and the whole top top of the play field lifts up, and the monster comes out. What do you think about that? So I was pitching all these ideas, and um, they were all very happy to use. Um, but none of – you know, use what they wanted to do, but nobody wanted – you know, it's the old story, right? I'm the designer of the game. What do I want your design in my game? So none of the designers working on the games would take any of my stuff. Um, so, um, I had, uh, I, you know, I had accumulated literally rooms full of working prototypes of stuff, and one of the guys that I used to show stuff to was Kenny Fidesma at Williams, and I had known Kenny from the business, um, and, um, I would call him from time to time and say, hey, Kenny, I got this thing, you know, come see it, and he would come out, and he would look at it, uh, yeah, you know, and, and, and Kenny told me right up front, he said, you know, the problem with this is, is our guy's. That's your problem. It's, it's not not that there's anything wrong with the stuff. It's just our guys. Our guys, you know, you know Pat Lawler's not going to take your stuff. He's got his own. And Steve Bridges is not going to take your stuff. He's got his own. So
0: let's um, so solve the problem. Let's hire George, and now he can have his own.
2: Well, so you know what happened is uh, one day um, Ken Fidesma was coming over to see me to, so I could show him something, and he had Neil Nicastro in tow. Um, because they were going on to some other meeting and um, something like that. I can't remember the specifics of why the two of them were there. But Neil showed up, and um, I think he saw, you know, I think at the time Capcom had come to town and stolen a bunch of Williams designers, you know, Mark Ritchie and a bunch of those guys that split to go work on the Capcom stuff. And uh, I was just at the right place at the right time. Um, uh you know, I showed them, you know, Kenny said, well, yeah, bring, bring out, uh, what, well, you know, what else you got back there? And so I, <laughs> you know, I just, uh, started, started bringing stuff out of the prize closet. And, um, I think they figured out, oh, you know, this, this guy can make stuff. Uh, I had done, um, a bunch of, they, they actually, I think I had come to, to their attention because I had done a bunch of stuff for Lauren Bromley in Redemption Games. And, um, through Grand Products. And so, uh, um, they had seen some of my stuff at trade shows. You know, it's funny, they didn't know of me from Midway, which, because since i have been gone in the toy business, um, I found it curious that they, none of them knew me from Midway. And yet, you know, I had competed with all of those guys, you know, back in the day. Uh, so, uh, they actually, they, so they offered me a job. And, um, I, I, um, uh, what swung it was because uh, I actually I literally went to the you know Kenny and Neil were over on a Friday or something and on Monday I get a call from Debbie Silkwood uh, Kenny's secretary saying hey uh, they want to have lunch with you uh, you know when are you free and I was like okay I, they're not going to have lunch with me to buy this thing that I showed them uh, they they're, you know they're they're, they're going to offer me a job and at the time I uh, to tell you the truth I was like hmm, I was just beginning to make a go of um, you know the 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 business so to speak, it was a struggle, but it was you know we were getting work and we were kind of uh you know I still had the hopes in the back of my head that someday we would sell something to somebody and um what uh, Kenny said he goes, you know look he says, right now you um you work on all this other stuff or all this stuff for other people you you struggle with uh you know wanting doing stuff you don't want to do and um, and you got to have all you got to you got to do all this crappy work in order to do the five ideas that you want to do uh, on at any given time because you can't afford to just do your own stuff because you don't know if you're going to sell it. So he said, "Why don't you come on board here? We'll give you a design team. You can do anything you want." You know, he said, "You know how we work. You know, you you can be the king of your team and do whatever you want to do, and uh, you know we'll um, you know in, and it's one thing you're focused on one thing." And what they really wanted me to do was was not pinball. They had not offered me a job designing pinball machines. They were offering me a job. They wanted to compete with Lauren Bromley. And um, they wanted to... They had taken notice of the redemption business. And they wanted to make novelty games for the redemption business. Hmm. So um, I went... You know, I thought about it. And it was an appropriate time because I had just gotten divorced. I needed a change of pace. And um, I said yes. And, uh, I went, and, uh, the first couple of months, uh, it was really funny, you know, they, they would, uh, Kenny would walk into my office, I'd be working on a novelty game, and, um, I was kind of the dark horse designer, because, uh, nobody gave a shit about novelty games, and they were, they were kind of the, <laughs> you know, small potatoes at the, you know, amongst the, the, you know, the pinball gods.
0: Yeah, amongst the Adams families of the world, here you got a novelty game designer.
2: Yeah, you know, it was like yeah, whatever, you know. And so uh uh those guys liked me. I mean, you know, Pat uh had a lot of respect for my stuff. He had seen it over the years and and, and he had a lot of respect for my stuff. So um, and Steve uh was was uh, a huge mentor to me um, when I first went there and uh and throughout um, and um, and so uh um, I think that and I think that uh because some of those guys uh, had respect for my stuff, I think, you know, Larry kind of gave me the benefit of the doubt, and uh, so, uh, uh, but every every three weeks, Kenny would come by my office and go, yeah, you know what, uh, do you think, uh, what do you think about pinball? And i said, oh yeah, I'd love to try my hand at a pinball, Kenny. He said, yeah, you know, here's what I want you to do, it's like 20% of your time should be spent on a pinball, and then, uh you know, which is like the most ridiculous thing on the planet, right? I mean, 20% of my time is spent on a pinball, how do you do that? So... Uh, I would do, um uh, you know, I'd start thinking about a pinball or something. And then, and then the next three weeks would go by and, and there'd be, you know, Tanya would come in and say, could you spend 40% of your time? Of a pinball? <laughs> and finally one day he came in and he goes, okay, there's a hole in the production schedule, could you do a pinball? <laughs> and so, I was like, sure, sure, I, I'd love to, I'd love to do a pinball. So, um, <clears throat> I brought in a guy who was my, um um my my uh you know mechanical engineer at midway young guy named uh, Tom Copera who went on to do Cactus Canyon as a designer and uh Tom and I have been working together for years um, he's great he uh you know classi- classically trained mechanical engineer um, you know really uh, has has made me look like a hero for years and uh um, made all my uh you know made all of my my dream uh, you know, blue sky bullshit, uh, real and uh a lot of it and, and taught me a lot in the process, I think. Uh so he's a good friend of mine and, and I so they you know, Kenny said, What do you need? And I said, Well I need this guy. Uh he's gonna be my project engineer. And uh they hired um a guy named Tom Uban who was my software engineer and uh we went off and running and then that first day that first game was Corvette and then the company was very um focused on licensing and so um
0: uh, and, and did you do Corvette because you were a Corvette fan, or just because the license was available?
2: I, I did Corvette because I was a, a huge Corvette fan, and I, I knew the I knew the the demographic. I knew the guys that bought the Corvettes, and and uh, Corvettes are a way of life with some people. Um, if you know the Corvette hobby, it's uh, it's very similar to the, the Harley hobby, in that uh, some of these guys are dyed in the wool, you know. Uh, you know, they've got, uh, you know, I know a guy up north that has a, you know, has a 5,000-square-foot garage, basically, which is, a, you know, it's a, it's a shrine to Corvettes, and uh, everything Corvette. And uh, so my my thought at the time, the, the, the you know, the pinball, there was already conversations that the pinball market was soft, and, and my thought was, hey, what if we could put a Corvette in every dealership? In the dealership waiting room, you could stick a Corvette pinball, Um and I pushed hard uh, to uh, to do that. Uh, the very first obstacle in doing Corvette, by the way, is I went to see Roger Shark, who was running the licensing department. And Roger says to me, uh, I said, Roger, I've got it. I've figured it out. I know exactly what I want to do. And it's perfect because I'm, I'm a huge Corvette nut, and I know cars. I'm way into cars, and I want to do this. And I'm going to have a racetrack. I'm going to have a big engine. And it's going to shake, and I'm gonna have the ball, and blah, blah. And and Roger says, uh, yeah, there's just one problem. Look at that this uh, Pat Lawler has dibs on Corvette. And I was
1: like, Oh,
2: don't tell me this. And he's yeah, Pat Lawler's dibs on Corvette. So
0: Ford Mustangs are still available though, George?
2: <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, I you know uh I go sheepishly into Pat's office because Roger basically tells me, Look, if if you don't get clearance from Pat, um You know, I mean, at at this particular moment in time, you're 11th man on the deal team. You know, nobody knows you. Nobody gives a shit about you. You know, you're in the shark pool. There are some, you know, there's this big honking great white shark. um, And then there's this, you know, there's this other big honking great white shark. And then there's all these other, you know, tiger sharks and blue sharks and all these other sharks that live in that shark pool. And if you don't get clearance from the big boss, you, you can't have it.
0: So what are they saying? That you're the nurse shark or something?
2: I was like the hell, I was a I was a goldfish. <laughs> so uh so I went to see Pat and I said, uh hey listen, I um and I I I'll tell you I'm forever grateful for this because he really uh, wielded such power that he could have just said, sorry. Uh and he he said, you know what, uh you're passionate about that and, and about this and it's good and that's really good and he said it's your first game and you really need to make a splash if there's going to be a second game. So I'll make a deal with you. You can do this one, but I'm doing the next one. So uh, I said deal. So meaning, you know, if, if we ever go back and revisit Corvette and we do another Corvette, the, 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 Pat has dibs. So, uh, uh, I went running back to Roger. I was beside myself. I was like, Roger, Roger, I got permission. Let's do it. You know, and, turn the key. And Roger, Roger said, okay, alright, I'll call Chevrolet. And, you know, uh, so we, we got going. And, um, and, and that was, uh, uh, it was, I mean, it was great. It was like, uh, uh, Williams at that time was, uh, I used to call him Street Gangs. You know, it was basically it was seven Street Gangs. Every design team was a Street Gang. And uh, some street gangs controlled more territory. Um, there were also allegiances amongst the street gangs. Um,
1: Did you
0: have signs and stuff, too, and special code language?
2: There was, um, you know, there was with every, you know, I'm not using your ball popper, because I've got my own. <laughs> I would never touch that. I would never do things that way. So every game was like, you know, there was this, uh, I mean, we used to say the competition is not down the street at Stern. It's, it's across, you know, it's across the hall. Down the hall. That's that's the competition. Um, those guys over there, you know, yeah, what, whatever, you know. So they, um, they, it was a it was a very competitive environment, and uh, um, the only respect for anything uh, pinball was uh, uh, what happened within those walls. And um, um, these were very competitive guys. I mean, you know, you've heard. Uh, you talk to these guys, and you know, you know what's, you know what was there.
0: Now, was Corvette supposed to be designed as a wide body, or you know, it obviously wasn't. It was
2: a wide body for about three weeks. It never got off the ground. Uh, I don't, I don't even remember if we white witted a, a wide body. It began life as a wide body.
0: Um, Why didn't it stay that way? Only
2: because that was everything in, in house was a wide body, and then three weeks later, everything in house was not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, somebody figured. You know, the, I mean, it was just, it was. We were going into, you know, it was the beginning of the decline. I mean, I, I am convinced that that um, I was cheated my, by my timing. I, I would have had much greater success um, had I arrived uh, five years earlier. Um, I think I really totally missed the boat, and and it was it was an uphill battle all the time I was there. You know, we lived with uh, the specter of death, you know, right around the corner. You know, in terms of, uh, you know, the business. You know, it just—it was a—it just, was, was a shitty time. You know, it's like it, every—we couldn't have, having a hell of a time replicating 1992. You know, can't do it. Can't can't seem to can't seem to get there.
0: Oh, oh my my buddy Norm wants to know since your name is Gomez, why you didn't decide an Adams family?
2: Yeah, well, first
0: of all, <laughs> I, I bet you never heard that joke before.
2: Yeah. So yeah, you know, it was a it was a it was a weird time uh, in that in that. Uh, but it was, I have to say, it was uh, I have. I have such incredible, you know, incredibly fond memories of that time. Um, Steve Rich used to say, "You know, it's a fight to make these games, and you got to love the fight." And uh, that's so true. It was it was such a fight, and it was such a struggle, um, which was interesting because you know you'd think that, you know, you'd have you have the resources of this enormous corporation, and that you know they everybody would be pulling in the same direction, but that's not the case. And, and so, um, it was a, it was a struggle. There were you know, other guys trying to knock you off, and you can't get your, you know, you can't get priority in the model shop, and you can't get your stuff made, and, and, uh, you know, it's like, I did that first. Get that off your play field. No, no, it, it, you know, it's like, it, it was, it was, uh, it was great. But it was, uh, it was. It
0: doesn't sound great quite the way you describe it, though.
2: Well, you know, you, you know, it's like, you can't. You cannot, I have yet to run across that combination of personalities, that combination of talent, that combination, I mean, when I worked at Marvin Glass, there was an incredible amount of talent at that place. And and, and, and in, in a lot of ways, Williams reminded me that of that, uh, in that, that there was a tremendous amount of talent. These are the most talented guys I've ever worked with. Um, i mean it's it's uh it was and it was it was a fun i mean in in spite of the the hell it was it was it was fun i mean it was uh it was competitive and it was uh energetic i mean there was so much energy in that building you you just can't imagine i mean it was the the engineering department there was uh and every day was an adventure i mean it was just it was uh, another high adventure day at willie you know it was it was because you know i mean at three o'clock in the afternoon Steve Ritchie would shut his door and play Led Zeppelin on his guitar for an hour, as loud as, as, as his amplifier would go. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, there would be shouting matches in the hallway over something that you think, you know, it's just a pinball machine. <laughs> I mean, it's, but, but the, 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 the passion that these, that these people brought to, to making this product um, was, was just incredibly intense, just incredibly intense.
0: In Corvette, the, uh, the dot matrix animations of the ladies, were those anybody's, you know, any women in anybody's lives, or was that just what Adam Ryan came up with? One of
2: them was, uh, one of them, actually the girl that's looking at, back at you from the play field, and the girl who did the French speech was a girl that I was dating at the time. Hmm. Um, um uh, Lori Hansen is her name, and, um she was, um, I had, um, um, uh, you know, I'd basically just gotten divorced, uh, right around the time that I started work at Pinball, and then about a year later, I met her and dated her for a short time, and and she was a flight attendant for American Airlines, um, and she flew the international routes, and she spoke fluent French, and so when we came up with the, this notion of, uh, um, you know, kind of girls from around the world kind of thing, um, you know, we brought her in to do the French speech, and, um... And so uh, I believe it's her French speech that's in the game. And, and then um, they, somebody in the art department, I think the, the guy who's the art director at, at, or the uh, art lead on the game, um, um, uh, photographed her and used her image to um, model the... And actually what's interesting is that Laurie was actually a brunette, but uh, we determined that brunettes weren't going to get us as much mileage as blondes, and so uh, there's a lot of blondes in that game. <laughs>
0: So on Corvette, was there anything that you designed into the game that couldn't, you know, got costed out or that you couldn't use that you were sorry? Yeah. Uh,
1: yeah,
2: there was a. We had a four-speed shifter, like, uh, you know, imagine the shifter on a video game, uh, on an arcade video game, like the, a uh, physical, you know, physical shifter. Right. And um, actually, there, you know, there's half a dozen. No, there's more. There's probably, a dozen games on the planet that have that shifter. Uh, with the software to run it, um, and it, it, we, that got costed out. Um, there, there was uh, there was a big, uh, you know, it, it, in classic Willy fashion. It's kind of like, you know, nobody costed the thing, you know, when 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 you had five months left to go in the design cycle. You know, some guy showed up, you know, four weeks before you were on the line with with the thing that said you're uh you're fifty two dollars and thirty five cents over cost I say what you know, like, or no, you know it's better than that you know you're five hundred dollars over cost what you know it's like so so then there's this scramble you know now you've got like all this shit designed in and you got you know and you've like taken care of all the ball traps or you you think you've taken care of all the ball traps let me get let me correct myself before the other designers crucify me um and and um uh, you know you, you 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 uh and you know there's there's a guy standing there with a clipboard and he says you know where where's it coming from and so you start looking for you know the first to go are the big fat targets of opportunity and a you know a, a a big steel can on the side of your pinball machine with a you know with a four speed shifter knob sticking out of the top of it and four switches or whatever is uh is is probably a a pretty big target of opportunity so uh that went and uh and then after that I mean you know eventually you're down to the uh you know you're taking out you know the the proverbial drop targets and uh always the first to go yeah. <laughs> and uh and uh you know then, then it gets and then it gets stupid you know it gets like uh, you know okay this this switch gate you know if we if we rewrite the logic we um you know there is a scenario where where at the ball you know we sense the ball here and uh, and then we see that switch open, so we know the ball's not there. And then we use this other switch, uh, and and you know it's just you go, you go through that exercise, and you know there's another dollar fifty at the cost of god knows how many man hours of software engineering and and um, and and thought.
0: <laughs> but but they didn't care about that. They cared about just the hardware, right?
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know what the the thing is that. Um, Here's the great thing about Williams Electronics at that time, and, and it was, design was king, and uh, there's very few places on the planet where you can say that. Even in my current uh, position, uh, design is not king. There is uh, there, there, are, there are factors uh, in management that, that exert more power on the product uh, than, than at that particular moment in time at Williams. I mean, it's it is it is the reason that all of those magical products came to be that the fact that the passion was very uh you know was almost undiluted and and so that's what that's what will give you the eureka product the more you water that out of the equation take the visionaries out you reduce your chances to some extent i suppose that there's an argument that says that you also increase your, um, you know, may increase your productivity. I mean, we were doing very stupid things. The street gang mentality that I described created a lot of stupid scenarios. You know, why should there be five ball poppers that basically do the same thing? You know, why should there be numerous technologies for the same uh, event? Why should there be? You know, why isn't this code being shared? Why is this? It's just a, just a bunch of stuff like that that we did that was very bad. Um, and and also, the, the spoiled children that we were, we didn't pay enough attention to manufacturing and the needs of manufacturing. We talked a good game, but, you know, it's like some guys, you know, some guys never showed up on the assembly line when their games were going first going on. That would not be me, by the way. But, I mean, some guys would just abandon the game at that particular moment in time. You know, it's not my job. I'm the designer. Said, no, it is your job. Huh. You, you know, it is your job to chase it and when shit blows up on the outside it is your job to think about how to fix it uh we were spoiled and so with that you get the good is you get some pretty some pretty strong venom you know you get you get like the stuff that that you know is is really potent you get all the great ideas all the great stuff but with that you also get you know like the the fact that uh um, a designer can mandate something that perhaps is you know, there's a better way to do it, or a simpler way to do it, just simply because he can exercise that power. And uh, so that was the good and the bad. And and when when the company kind of started paying attention to the economies of that, you know, of manufacturing, I think a little bit too late in in some ways. We came to a lot of these conclusions much later, and had we had more time during the Pinball 2000 event, we would have well, we would have refined things for sure. You know, I heard Joe's uh, interview the other day, and and you know he said something I think mean, is mean, very which um, he's mistaken about. Uh, um, my vision of, of Pinball 2000 was not that it was a replacement for what he calls uh, you know uh, electromechanical or like you know whatever Me-
0: mechanical pinball, as they like to call
1: it. Yeah, uh,
2: uh, absolutely. My my vision was that this was a um, another product line and um, but the reality is that that that's that's not the way uh, you know management saw it and for whatever reason they they you know you have one shot and this is the shot so
0: yeah you mean you were envisioning it like there, you'd still be building you know dot matrix style pinballs and you know maybe you'd alternate with a pinball 2000 game
2: why why wouldn't you i mean it's like you know you why why it, it's like why wouldn't you have two differently priced um, product lines and uh, uh not only that, but it it, um, it would preserve would eradicate the, the 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 stigma of kits, which you know we were very afraid of with 2000. And yet we thought we have to go in this direction because of you know to try to hit the economics. But there's no, I mean, the, the notion that that you know we were uh, ignorant to that is just you know just plain wrong. I mean, it, it we weren't ignorant to it. Well, you know, we did with what we had, and that's and that's the. You know, that's the, uh, uh, the part that nobody talks about. You know, it's a, like, we did with what we had. You know, we did with the time that we had. We did with the staff that we had. Um, we did with the brains that we had. And, and it's like, you know, we're not, you know, for 30 seconds, do you think we're that, uh, ignorant to the business that we're in every day? I mean, really, it's, it's insulting. But, you know, let people say what they say.
0: I thought that the whole pinball 2000 genre was just pure genius. I mean, I, you know if you don't mind, can you kind of run through the scenario of how the you know the how hollow pin thing came up in your relationship with Pat and how you guys actually you know engineered this thing and then brought it in and showed it and what the reaction was by management yeah um, sure uh, i I know you told this story a thousand times, but believe me it's worth hearing
2: yep um, well, you know um, combining mirrors are not uh, a new thing. As a matter of fact, Marvin Glassman Associates um, sold Valley a bunch of combining mirror ideas, um, and Marvin Glassman Associates didn't invent the combining mirror—a mirror that combines two objects to appear uh, such that they're in the same plane, if you will.
1: Yeah, heck,
0: they did that on early gun games in the in the 50s and 60s. Uh,
2: you know, the old in the 60s, you go through the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. There was half a dozen of those things in that thing. So I mean, it, it's not, it wasn't a new idea by any stretch. In 1978, when I started working at, 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 at Midway, in October of 1978, uh, you know, Space Invaders um, had a uh, had a moon that uh, was meant to appear like it was, and that moon was a plastic moon that was uh, blended with the video with a mirror, uh, with a see-through mirror. So um you know, it, it let's, uh, Let's kind of put things in perspective. Kevin O'Connor, you know the artist, Kevin O'Connor, during the during the Pinball 2000 project, showed me a drawing that I did like uh, way back when, that essentially had uh, the, the same identical idea. And he brought it to me like he said, you remember this?" And I I actually hadn't even, I, and we were already off and running in, in in the direction of Pinball 2000. But it's like my brain didn't even remember. I was like, I'm looking at the drawing and going, "Yeah, this is definitely my drawing." <laughs> so. You put things in your mind and, and, you know, you just, you, you store them or whatever. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was a shitty time.
0: Well, you were given a, given a gun. So who were they pointing at? They were pointing at you guys, either.
2: Like you said, I've told the story many times. Basically, I was working on Monster Bash. And, uh, which I think is, is, is my best game ever. Um, by the way.
0: I think a lot of people would, uh, would agree, but a lot of people, uh, that are Lord of the Ring fans may argue with you.
2: Yeah yeah I, I guess so i uh i just i i don't have that affinity for lord I wasn't that uh into the fiction of lord um, but uh um i mean i and I think that uh you know realistically um, um, you know Keith gets uh doesn't get the credit he deserves for uh for Lord um, you know because he if not for Keith Lord wouldn't be what it is um certainly lord is not what it is because uh I stuck a ball rug in it, you know. Um, there's a there's a lot of stuff in Lord that um, was very very driven by by Keith. I like Bash. I love Bash, and um, and Bash was one of those magical uh, moments in in the development of a product where um, this you know the you know sun and the moon and the stars all line up uh, in terms of the quality and enthusiasm of the people working on the product. Um, as a guy who, I, I tell you, I've run a lot of design teams in the course of my career. I, I'm running a design team now. And, uh, I wish that I could, uh, with some magic, uh, recreate, uh, the chemistry that, um, uh, creates, uh, incredible products, uh, consistently. Um, but, but you can't. It's like saying that, uh, you know, every time up to bat, you're gonna hit a home run. And, right, and a lot of it has to do with the, the personalities of the people involved on your team, and the amount of effort that they're putting in, and the enthusiasm for the thing that you're collectively building. And as the designer, your your task is to unify the vision um, and lead. You know, I've had I've had uh, uh, mixed results. You know, when I introspectively ask myself, you know, why did this one, you know, why did I, you know, screw this one up? Why did I have success with this one? Um, it's, it's a, uh, it's a formula that, that, uh, I'm not entirely sure, uh, you know, you can, you can recreate or, or predict. But Bash was one of those times, uh, um, you know, Lyman is, um, incredibly talented and, uh, he was into the thing that we were building, uh, and, and, you know, Vince Ponarelli, uh, did a masterful job with the, the audio and he was way into it. And you know, I think we had, you know, I knew, you know, you always know when you have something because, uh, you're, you're, you're always trying to kick people off the game when you're trying to do work on it. Um, uh, Chris Shipman, uh, my mechanical engineer was, was brand new to the business. Uh, he had, uh, been Mark Ritchie's mechanical engineer at Capcom when, when they were going, uh, uh, when they were going on and, uh, he was, uh, uh he had done a stint in the Peace Corps and then he, um Mark was, uh, you know, with his first, you know, his first job was at, at Capcom with Mark. And when that whole thing blew up, I was looking for, um, Tom Kupera had said to me, I want to design, I want to be a designer, and I want to move into the front seat. And I said, okay, um, you can do so with my blessing. I have to, you know, and then, and then I thought, okay, I have to replace Tom. So how am I going to do that? So I called Mark and I said, do you have any good guys over there? And he goes, yeah. He said, this is the guy. So uh, uh, Chris Shipman uh, came on board. um a great guy, I think he's, uh, he's, uh, designing bikes over at, uh, uh, SRAM, the, the you know, the guys that make, uh, the grip shifter, um, oh. you know, designing bike stuff. But, uh, uh, so yeah, it was Chris Shipman, uh, Vince Ponarelli on the audio stuff, uh, uh, Kevin O'Connor on the art, uh, Lyman of course, co-designing and, and, and doing, uh, software. And, uh, um so we, you know, we, we had a great time. And, and at three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, there was always a crowd in Lyman's uh, office to play the game, and uh, you know, it's like remember the struggle to you know, uh, you know, screw stuff to the game around the play schedule. You know, it was it was like <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> so, so I kind of knew we had something um, uh, back then. Bash uh, it remains my favorite. Um, when I, you know, when I'm at home, I've got you know, I've got all my games in my living room and. Uh, um, and, and the ones that I... I, I also have a, a, a Terminator, which is one of my favorites. Uh, Steve's Masterpiece, if, if you ask me. Um, and I find that I play the Terminator and the Bash um, more than anything.
0: Did anything get costed out of Monster Bash?
2: Uh, yeah. Actually, there was a ramp in front of Frankenstein that uh, would uh, raise up so that the ball would strike him a little bit higher. And uh, how, that, how that came to be is uh, it was actually driven by Chris Shipman, uh, much to Lyman's, uh, you know, dismay, because Lyman really liked that little ramp. He every time, every time I talk to Lyman, he says, "Are you sure you don't have one of those ramps in your garage somewhere?" Because <laughs> I still got the software, and if you've got the ramp, I've got the software, and you know, I'll give you the software if you give me the ramp.
1: <laughs>
2: so, but you know, Chris was uh, playing the game one morning after having um, uh, screwed down a new version of Frankenstein or something to the playfield, and. And, uh, he realized that the switch was being made when you hit Frank, even though for whatever reason that day the ramp was not working. And so he said, hey, we're still, you know, we're still scoring the hit and we're still hitting Frankenstein. So, you know, why don't we take out the $15 ramp? And so, uh, uh, we did, you know, so. Um, that was costed out.
0: Yeah, great game. I mean, I, I own that game, and Norm owns that game, and they're just—I mean, you know, like you said, that's that's the game that everybody plays.
2: Yep. Oh, no. Lyman spent easily one third of the entire software development cycle, maybe half the entire software development cycle, developing that damn Phantom Flip feature.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> like, like every time I'm in there, and I, I, I got to tell you. Uh, he owes me big time because the, the, the number of uh, sensor and array configurations that he made me screw to that white wood was never-ending. Okay, now I want a uh, proximity sensor here and two IR sensors over there. Now I want a rollover switch and three proximity sensors. Now I want, and it was like just making me crazy. I'm like, we got got a game to build. Let's stop screwing around with this thing. No, 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 it's going to be cool. It's going to be cool. And you know, percentaging the thing, and uh, yeah. that's a you know, um, yeah. But it was it was all it was all good fun.
0: I, I like the Lyman's Lament thing too. Oh
2: yeah, it's because you know he's always bitching, right? So I, that was my idea. I just told him, I said, you know, I'm going to make a tune here. It's going to be with Lyman's Lament, and then we're going to record you saying all that all that stupid shit you say. And when you get it, that the game's just going to say all that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> he's always you know, <laughs> uh, Lyman's. He's great to work with. He, you know how he is. He he pisses and moans a lot. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> when you were doing the the Pinball Two Thousand gig, and you had Playboy on the line, I mean, was that a license that you wanted, or you just kind of got yeah,
2: Playboy was uh, entirely um, uh, Dwight Sullivan. I mean, it, you know, it was Dwight Sullivan wanted Playboy really badly. Uh, had a vision for how the game, you know, was uh, driven by the whole photo shoot concept. Um, you know, he had had. Uh, I mean, it had the sh- the shutter sounds from a camera in the game and uh um, i think it would have been enormous in um as a pinball 2000 it, was, it would it would've been a, a monster
0: it, it would it's, it's a perfect theme for that platform you yes, know? Uh, yes. it so. would have been a,
2: um, a tremendous theme for that platform I mean, and,
0: and so when you had to, when you were at stern then was this was this was this him again you know driving that pony at stern well,
2: no, you know, you know, first of all I wasn't at Stern. I I I did it on the side and and it was one of those things where um, no, I think that, you know, I've always liked I mean, I've always liked that license. I have fond memories of actually playing um Jimmy Patlas pinball. Um, the Bally pinball from way back. Right. Um, and I I never liked Stern's version. Um,
0: the, the Oh, you version. mean the Data East one? Data East, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, the Data East one, it, it sucked for a lot of reasons, but the main reason is it was when uh Hugh Hefner was getting married to one of the girls and the whole theme of that whole Playboy machine was just it, it just it, it didn't hit, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: So um uh yeah, I don't know. Um so yeah, yeah, I think I think we were both equally into it. Um you know, I think we guessed wrong on how um uh acceptable it was gonna be to just normal America. You know, I and the reality is that, you know, it think like if if mom and the kids are at the, at, you know, shopping for a pinball for the basement, um, you know, maybe, you know, maybe dad secretly wants to get the, the Playboy down there. But, you know, even with the, even with the, the targets with all the girls' clothes, um, it, uh, you know, it's not going to happen. I mean, it's like, you know, there's just more, there's more appealing titles that fit that role. And the reality is that that's the way that business is today. Uh, it's driven by uh, home sales. And, um, or I shouldn't say driven, but it's certainly a big part of it is home sales. And, and so you have to kind of keep that in mind when you select a theme for the marketplace today.
0: If I wanted to bring a Playboy machine into the basement, I could bring the Bally, you know, the 1978 version in, and it wouldn't catch any flack, and nobody would really think twice about it. But if I showed up with the 2002 version of the, of the Stern Playboy, I, you know, that would turn heads in the family. You know. Sure it
2: would, yeah. yeah. Although I think one of the greatest um, target concepts I've ever come up with was the, the the notion of the the three versions of the girls for each target, you know.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. And everybody of course wants the most risque version, even though they really can't have it.
2: factory recommended. I <laughs> <laughs> Always love that line, you know. It's like I was, I love that uh all of the uh the thing they printed out, you know, had the, the you know uh Sub nudity, full nudity, partial nudity—you know—and and there was like a check mark or something next to the thing that said, you know, full nudity, factory <laughs> recommended.
0: <laughs> Anyways, we never really did get to the pinball 2000 story.
1: So
2: you know, I mean, it was uh, okay. So I was working on Monster Bash, um, but the—you know—the the pressure was really on. I did not believe in um, John Papaduke. To his credit, did a did a. Uh, he did a lot to try to get me enthused about the version of Pinball 2000 which he was uh, working on, which was uh, had a, a big 25 inch monitor in the in the back class. Um, and I'll tell you something: if you think that Pinball 2000, as you know, it was expensive, that particular um, version was uh, you know astronomical in cost. It was the biggest, basically, the biggest dot matrix display on the planet. Uh, in terms of, uh, how it was being used. And so you either played on the monitor or you played on the playfield. And that's the thing that bothered me. That was, uh, you know, I was around. I was, um, I was at Midway when Valley was doing Baby Pack, all that stuff. I mean, I played all that stuff. I remember all that from the time. And I just, uh, I just didn't think much of it. And, um, and so I, I didn't, I could not be convinced, uh, that that version was gonna succeed. And I thought to myself that well, this was gonna cause us to blow up for sure. So, um, uh, Neil uh, Nicastro, I used to call him the demotivational speaker because uh, his method of motivation was basically, um, you know, very depressing. And so, you know, he would come tell you that, you know, uh, this is these boys, these, you know, this, these are the economics of the business and if you, you know, you have to recognize this. You're spending too much money, you're not making enough money out there and on the street and this, that and the other thing and, this you know, this company's a business and uh, the business needs to succeed. And all those things are, uh, in and of themselves, all of those things are absolutely true. Um, in the way that they are presented, they can really kind of send you off the deep end, you know. So, um,
0: Do you think it was something where it was like a subtle saying that he was kind of almost preparing you guys for the end? And...
2: You know, subtle like, um, uh, help me sharpen the edge of the guillotine. And, uh, let's see how your head fits right here. <clears throat> so, um
0: Sorry, sorry to laugh at that, but it actually is funny.
2: <laughs> it's the truth, man. It's like, it's the truth, and anybody who was there will tell you that, 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 uh, if anything, that was the attitude. Neil's one of those figures in, in, in the history of our business that is never presented, uh, in a, in a in a, in an, from an objective light uh, if you will so you know he's either bit dark vader or the nicest guy you know yes the pinball company was kind of an albatross around uh, the neck of the of the slot machine company and yes the, the slot machine company was the shiny new thing that uh was uh uh showed uh, enormous potential and uh um, you know was way sexier than this old uh you know junkie pinball company. there's no question about that, but the reality is that if if we had figured out a way to make the the pinball company um, um you know really successful, why would you walk away from it i mean it it you know it's it's kind of like so from that perspective i don't think that i don't think that Neil was like you know uh, out to get us or anything like that. I think that I think his methods not particularly uh, supportive, but I think that i think in in, in some ways um, and yet you know you, I'd say that, and at the same time i 'll tell you that, hey, you know what he he did give us a shot, and we did take our shot, so uh, perhaps perhaps he did support us
0: but now at at expo you when you made that emotional speech at the expo seminars, you knew that the, that the hatchet was dropping right i had a
2: yeah I had um essentially um yeah a little bird in the executive suite um that basically it said to me, um, you guys are done and um and so uh uh yeah i mean i I knew and uh uh
0: did you tell anybody i mean you were telling us but you no know, we weren't really listening in the scene
2: you know i mean i i I couldn't because i I just thought you know I can't it's kind of like my heart's broken. I, I can't break their hearts too. It was hard, and I I knew. I mean, I just knew. I just uh, um, I purposely stayed away the next day. Kind of, I uh, strolled in, you know, really late, and I just couldn't even all the way there. I'm driving there, going, oh shit, you know. I mean, what am I going to find when I get there? And uh, um, it was a very depressing time, uh, and very it was it was really disheartening. I mean, we really did. Um we did a lot with what we had. Um and, and we could have done more uh had the the thing been given more of a chance, I think uh, it would have gotten better. We had um the other interesting thing that happened that nobody talks about is that the process of designing uh, pinball machines was also redesigned in within the context of designing pinball two thousand. So um and it was a process that, that needed to be redesigned because uh, um, the street gangs um, may have worked at one time, but they had sort of stopped working. And so what Pinball 2000 did is it unified the engineering department. So instead of um, seven, uh, you know, ten-man brain trusts, uh, you now had a 70-man brain trust because everybody was kind of thinking in the same direction. And uh, I have to tell you that professionally, it was one of the most rewarding times um, in in my career because um, I led the creative on this. You know, no decision in in the course of that event uh, was made without my um, without consulting me. The amount of energy and talent that was brought to bear. Um, you know you had you had guys that you know you had the 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 cable guy coming up with ideas on on how to fix his
0: end of it right
2: and and so uh um, it
0: was a true team effort
2: yes and it was a, and it was a so so in in essence you know i think that what we missed out on is that um, the process uh was somewhat changed along with the product um I really believe that, you know, we, we, the, the system would have gotten better. The system would have evolved. Okay, I'm Henry Ford and, and, you know, here's, here's this four-wheeled, you know, engine-powered contraption and now kill it. And, and guess what? You know, you, you'll never see a Mercedes SLR. You, you will have never gotten to that point. You know, there will never be an Aston DBS. There will never be Anything that we've seen since. There will never be a Porsche GT3. There will never be any of this stuff because you killed it with the first one. So it's kind of like, you, you know, I mean, come on, everything else evolved. Why, why wouldn't that evolve, have evolved? The other mistake I think that we made was the, the single product line thing. I think that, you know, it, it, this could have been the high-end product line, conventional, the conventional game could have been redesigned, uh, to be. A lot of the stuff that we costed out of Pinball 2000 or that we learned about the economies of manufacturing and economies of scale in manufacturing Pinball 2000, all of that stuff could have been applied to the conventional game, um, and, and that, those games would have been superior.
0: In the Pinball 2000, the Wizard blocks, was that really radically different than the Star Wars and your Revenge?
2: Revenge and Star Wars were very different. I was very upset with Star Wars, to tell you the truth. Um, uh, Star Wars, to me, was a step backwards in terms of interactivity. Um,
0: yeah, I, I thought it, was, it wasn't using the platform very well.
2: It wasn't. It was, it was, but the problem is that remember, the guy who designed Star Wars was a guy who had, like six months before, a, month, a year before, was proposing showing you a movie on the back on, the, in, on what we know as the backlash and playing a game on the play field. And now all he did was show you the movie in the playfield. So I'm, I, you know, I mean, I just think that I, I was, I was uh, horrified every time that I saw the edges in the monitor. Um, in Revenge, I fought to, to, to kind of, to preserve the, the illusion. And, and you preserve the illusion by parking a marshal, a Martian, on, on a, in a lane. And hitting him with a ball and exploding him. That's how you preserve the illusion. You don't preserve the illusion by going edge to edge with a pink color, uh, and playing a movie in front of it. So, um, you know, I, you know, I was, I, uh, Neil McCasher and I had a run in one time, uh, and, and it was funny, for the longest time I didn't know what it was about. And then one day he explained it to me, and um, we were in the, Star Wars was developed in, in like, as I'm sure you've heard, in legendary secrecy. You know, it was like, you know, there was a very small cadre of people, um, the, the team, and then a few people outside the team. I was allowed in that area, and a few other people in management were allowed in that area, but nobody else was allowed in that area. None of the other designers, etc. So So um, there was a room in which um, uh, Star Wars was being uh, play-tested, and I walked in the room one day, I was playing the game by myself, and while I was playing, Neil came up behind me and he started watching me play and he started praising the game and talking about how excited he was that this was the next game, that this was the you know, this was the hit out of the park and all this kind of stuff. That's why I, I'm telling you that regard I mean, some you know, everybody's got different opinions. My opinion is not that he had some, you know, draconian vision to kill this thing from the get go. I think that he um Maybe he was disappointed that we came up, we pulled a rabbit out of the hat, I don't know, I mean, but I, but, but at that particular moment in time, what he was telling me was, you know, he was gushing enthusiasm for the Star Wars game, and he's standing behind me, and I was so, like, I was like, how can you say this? I mean, with all due respect to the guys that worked on the game, I thought it was, I, I didn't know what to say to him. I mean, I thought, I thought, if you think this is a game, then i you know i don't know where you've been because this is not a game this is like i shoot a ball around and then you play me a movie and and i, I this, this, there is no even video games today with as cinematic as we've gotten um, true gameplay um, is predicated on interactivity it's not predicated on um, watching movies is a passive event playing a video game is an interactive event and playing a pinball game is an interactive event star wars to me was lacking in
0: interactivity right and no so, no i completely agree with you
2: i was just rot. i walked out of the room didn't say a word to him and he thought i disrespected him like you know six months later he said to me you know there was that time you dissed me in there i, was like, I dissed you in there what are you talking about and he says to me, hey, you know, I was playing, we were, you and I were playing Star Wars in that room. There was no one else in that room. You, you walked out without saying a word. I said, yeah, I walked out without saying a word. Nothing to do with you other than the fact that I couldn't believe what you were telling me. You are telling me that you thought this, this was the greatest thing since sliced bread, and I'm, I'm sitting there just disgusted with, with the thing I'm playing. And, and, of course, I don't have, I mean, I can, you know, I politely tell John, hey, John, you know, you think, can, can you know, try to avoid the edges of the monitor. Can you... You know, uh, do you really need to, you know, keep going into this movie thing, man? I mean, really. It's like, it just, so, anyway. um,
0: Well, then Wizard Blacks was probably a good thing then,
1: right?
2: From my perspective, it was a great thing. From my perspective, it was beginning to use the system the way that I envisioned the system to be used. um, With, you know, a a minimum amount of edge-to-edge. With a concerted effort at... Trying. I mean, I did. You know what? You got to remember, I, I did the obvious with revenge. I mean, I did the obvious. Wait, I didn't have time to do anything but the obvious. <laughs> I stuck the stuff in the middle. I tried to put some stuff in the in, in, uh, along the sides, but uh, there was a lot of there was a lot of things that I wanted to experiment with that Pat probably could have had time to experiment that, that other designers could have that John realistically could have had time to experiment with, but he didn't. And so, from that perspective. I think that um, Wizard Blocks was probably a step in the right direction. Yes, I think so. I think that the, the notion, you know, tr- it's kind of like um, you got to look past the trick. You know, it's kind of like you got to, you have to begin to deal with these things. When I play my Revenge, I stop thinking about the stupid mirror. I stop thinking about the, the. I just play the game, and people, people come over and they watch it and they play the game. They, they love the game. They love the humor and and the, you know, the this and the that, and pretty soon you're into it and you've forgotten all about the hologram effect, whatever you want to call it, combining it, the whole thing. You just want to forget about it. It's like, you know, and that's what's supposed to happen. What's supposed to happen is you're supposed to play the game. The game is supposed to entertain you. I had somebody over here the other day, they were talking about, the you know, we're playing the the, the, the wave with the Bill Clinton speech, you know, and then, you know, they, were just, they were just cracking up. Public figure back then, you know, we took all the shots we could take. Everybody else to, was taking them, you know, Great
0: fun. Nobody had any issue with with taking liberties at that. No,
2: no, that I mean, that's been done a lot. I guess that public figures and all, you can, you can get away with it. Right,
0: right. Yeah, no, I think Revenge was amazing. I own a Revenge, and and it's and when new people come over, I like to show them that game because I like to see their reaction. You know, it, it, it's it's I mean, unbelievable. It's
2: just, but it, but it's, I think I think the system would would have evolved. I think that. Um, you know i think that i think the system would have evolved i think that the magic would have been to keep two product lines i think that um, the cost re- reduction and efficiency and 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 reliability um, uh things that were designed into pinball 2000 uh would have made their way uh, certainly anything in the in the in the bottom of the game anything in the in in the uh in you know in the, in the main cabinet would have made its way into the uh conventional line uh, the mechanical action line, if you will, um, and so um, and I think there was a lot of stuff there. You know, I think there was a lot of
1: stuff there.
0: Well, now I, I heard that there was a, like after the the Wizard Blocks and the Playboy that there was like a fifth game that was kind of like a Haunted Mansion type game. Is that true?
2: Yeah, yeah. There was some conversation about that. I can't remember. Was that Pete Petrowski or I can't remember whose group that was?
0: I, that would have been a great theme.
2: Yeah, Star Wars. I mean, you know, the, you got the big Kahuna license, and you got, you know, you got, uh, you know, you got this, uh, you know, super pinball machine, and now um, you don't go out and sell, you know, fifteen thousand of these things, and so um, you know that's what that's what kicked us in the ass, really. I mean, that's that's what uh, that's what did it. But I think we sold like. 7,400...
0: Almost 6,900 revenges, which is a pretty strong run.
2: All
0: right, there you go. Yeah, and and that's such a strong run. To kind of put it in perspective, to go back to your Corvette in 1994, you sold 5,000 of those, and here you have something that's, you know, years and years later when the economics of pinball are way different, and you outsell the game back from 94, which is really interesting. You got to be proud. I mean, almost 7,000 games is an incredible number of games. I mean, no, since then, nobody sold that many games.
2: That's true. You know, Gary, uh I love Gary and and I I um and I and I love doing stuff for him. Um uh, it's 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 uh it's a lot of fun. It's um it's really become it's become my my Sunday afternoon hobby. It's kind of like, you know, going to the garage and tinker with a pinball machine kind of thing. And and but I uh um I think he stands to break that record uh, the way that he builds games because you know he just keeps revisiting a title. Uh, the success of you know you mentioned Lord of the Rings, right? Which is my my most successful uh, Stern product, and 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 I think it's maybe their more, their most successful game. I, I'm not entirely sure. Um, and so uh, uh, you know it wasn't made in one run. It was made in it, you know and continues to be made. So it's kind of made on demand, in, in, if you will. Um, sopranos, you know, it's like, you know, th- th- tonight we will all watch the final episode of Sopranos, and, uh, you know, I, I guarantee you that uh, uh, Gary is selling Sopranos, um, and so, um, you know, it, he may break any of those numbers uh, with his methodology, which is a very, very, um, very interesting methodology, which Williams... Um, Really resisted the notion of going back and tooling up an assembly line and doing it again. And we were always told that you know it costs too much money to do it, et cetera, et cetera. But, but um,
0: um, yeah, I, for Gary, it works.
2: It sure does. It sure does. Um, now, obviously, you know, Gary's not uh, the manufacturing behemoth that, uh, that that Willie was. From a business perspective, the the, the beauty of having companies with a uh, very diverse product in your portfolio is that not all of not every business uh, will you know consistently be successful and so you can draw if you can draw on um, you know the success of one business when another business is soft that i, I think that it makes sense but you have to be committed to the businesses that you're in you know it's it's like um I you know I could never understand when we got uh, when we had uh, the, when the GE management boys took over Valley in the early 80s. Um, I mean the, the the notion of selling off Aladdin's castles and selling off distribution when you basically had it you know coming and going on all ends. I mean if you walked into an it, it, when Atari had a, a hit, an Asteroids for example, um, Valley was profiting because Valley was operating the game and they were distributing the game. So it's kind of like, yeah, it's nice when the Bally product hits a home run. It's nice when you have a Pac-Man or it's nice when you have a, a Tron. But what what about when you don't? Well, guess what? Sega's got some, you know, Sega's got Out Run or or Sega, you know, or Atari's got Missile Command and guess what? You're you're distributing and you're operating. So like, you know, who who would who would shoot this golden goose? Right? I mean, it's like what what kind of idiocy is that? So and, and, and in Willie's case, I think, so you got this video game company, and the video game company has every capacity to grow into the business that it is, to, you know, that, that, the home business that it is in today, and you have a slot machine company, a fledgling slot machine company, and you have a pinball company. So it's kind of like, nurse them off. I mean, you know, yeah, shut the spigot down to a trickle when a particular business is not Necessarily explosive, but at the same time, don't don't lop it off. It's kind of like, oh yeah, you know, it's it's, it's let's get rid of it, and move on. Well, to me, that says you don't want to be in the business. You want to be in a different business.
1: Right.
2: I mean, it's it's kind of like, but if if you know, it, I don't know. You want to be a coin man? Then you know, stay in the coin business. That's great. But what's wrong with when your coin business is soft, your slot business is strong, or or, you know, God forbid your, your video game business is big. Um, but there's other factors driving that, right? I mean, there was a bunch of money made when the thing, when, when the video game company was spun off, and that's what really it was, it was about. It wasn't,
0: it wasn't... Yeah, it was short, short-term goals outweighed long-term.
2: Yeah, it, was, it wasn't about being, wanting to be in the business. It was about, you know, how much money can we make with this? Because we're in the, you know, we're in the, in, in the business of making a profit today and, and fuck everything else.
0: Now, when you're building games for Stern, you're kind of doing this on the side because you still work for Midway, right? Correct. So, like, when you did Lord of the Rings, uh, was there, you know, compared to working for Willie, as you put it, is, I mean, did they cost you out of a lot of things in Lord of the Rings that you wanted in the game?
2: Um, well, the, um, you know, at, at Stern, things are way tighter than uh, they were at uh, Willie. I mean, in terms of, they, they pay... They have to. They're they're small shop. They have to pay close attention to margins. I mean, their margins are pretty tight, you know. And so, um, you know, Gary and those guys, man, you know, they earn every dollar. I mean, every dollar. Every dollar is hard fought. There's there's no, you know, nobody's getting rich over there. And and there's there's it. It they have to pay attention. They don't they they don't have the luxury. to go off and, and just and just play. They they have to be they have to consciously design their games. You know, when I design a game for them, because of because of the nature of the fact that, you know, I, I'm not there every day and I'm not working on this thing day and night every night, the, the I, I it's basically it's drawing in broad strokes. You know, it's it's kind of like there's a bunch of guys inside that um uh that really finish my stuff, that really take it to the next level in terms of you know de- developing it, getting it ready for production, etc., and so uh, I don't have the time to you know to to, to devote to it um, the way I would you know the way I would like if that that's all I, if if that if that was all I was doing I would they would you know it would get a lot more attention. Um, it, I think that um, those products are a lot of fun to do because they are. You know they are done in a sort of a low pressure kind of way, um, and so from that from that standpoint, they're you know they're they're very hobby like for me, and, and I and I love them. I mean I I think it, I think it's a, I think it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of really talented people that support me on the inside and and take the stuff and make it producible and do a lot of the things that um, I would otherwise um, have to do if I was you know if I was uh, um, you know like when I was at Wooly.
0: So you're giving them more like raw ideas, and they're the ones that are actually refining it more. So um,
2: they're doing a lot of, you know, they're doing all of the engineering. Um, they're doing, um, you know, they, you know, they still get they get playfields from me. Um, I mean, they are my playfields, um, and and I definitely tinker with them. But there's there's a whole crew of engineers that that jump on that thing um, when it gets inside.
0: Now back to the the, the pinball two thousand thing. When you were originally developing that, how why did you bring Pat Lawler in on this? Why wasn't this just you know a solo thing?
2: Well, Pat and I, um, the, the entire um, notion to go in that direction uh, was spurred by a conversation that him and I had. Um, so you know we we had been called in this meeting, as you've heard. Uh, Uh, Countless times, and we had been told, basically, you know, this is the writing on the wall. And him and I walked out of there, and and he was very concerned. He said, you know, he said this this may never get to fruition.
0: You're talking about the Papaduke model,
2: yeah. Because the problem with the Papaduke approach was that there was there was dissension in the ranks. Um, All of engineering was not um, firmly in that camp. Uh, and that's what, uh, Nicastro noticed. And that's what Nicastro came after. That, that meeting was, was basically about, you know, get, get with the program or get the hell out. And, and, and you know, and that, you know, almost his words, uh, I don't remember exactly, but it, it, was, it was, like, okay, you guys don't, you know, you know what, you don't have a better idea. So, you know, that, that alone, uh, you know, with guys, like us that alone is like you know, okay you threw down the gauntlet i don't have a better idea i, I got i got a better idea i'm gonna show you my better idea so.
0: how, how long did it take you to come up with a better idea
2: um well you know honestly the um the you know we mentioned it in the conversation that we immediately had we we started talking about uh, right away you know he you know pat was very concerned that this was never going to make it to, to he said you know what this this thing is going to be exposed for, you know, it's going to be the emperor's new clothes, and 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 then they're going to pull the plug at that point. It's never going to see the light of day. And uh, um, so in that conversation we started talking about, you know, remember in the 80s when we were fooling around with uh, all those mirrors and stuff, you know, what if we could, um, you know, revisit some of those ideas and, and try to, Get the targets right on the play field. So I mean, the the, the concept was not uh, wasn't like we had to think about what we were going to do. We had we had to think about how we were going to do it, but but um, we kind of knew what we were going to do. Um, and so then, you know, he said, "Well, he said, you know, you're working on Monster Bash, and 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 I, I don't even remember what I don't even I don't even remember what he was working on, but uh, he said we're never going to do this here. The politics are just." Um, you know, gonna prevent us from doing it here. So he said, I've got a full shop in my house out in Marengo and and you know, we should just go out there and just you know, don't even tell people we're doing this thing, we should just, just fucking do it and bring it in. So I think the only guy that we told I think Damar knew obviously that we were doing it. And um so we went out there and, and, and we did it. It was uh it took us I don't know what, it was a month or you know, it, it seemed like it was about a month and a half or I I don't remember the time frame but I would drive out there after work and uh, uh Patricia, Pat's wife would make us dinner and we'd go into the we'd go into the shop and and make stuff and um I had a bunch of uh Amiga art that I had done for games back in the um uh, in the days when I was pitching stuff and I had uh, I had pitched a robot game it had these big huge robots they were like uh they, they almost filled a nineteen inch screen in terms of height. And um uh so we hooked up my Amiga um you know, to uh to a nineteen inch monitor and um and and we went out to the store and bought some uh, uh limo tint. You know, like the the stuff they used to tint uh, sure. um windows and limos and we bought the like the lightest grade that they had <laughs> and um we had, Pat had an old cabinet there, and then we built a top box out of plywood, put this whole thing together. I had made, a, the, the thing that you've seen at Expo, That I had made a little tabletop mock-up uh, in foam core one night with uh, using, a, of all things, a slide, a 35-millimeter slide from Johnny Mnemonic that I had laying around, like uh from the movie, guys, that they, they'd given me a bunch of, they'd given me a bunch of 35-millimeter slides when I was working on the game, and um, um, I happen to have one sitting around in my office and I and I made this little mock up and I took the slide and put it in the place of the monitor and, and I took a flashlight, shined it in from above and um, and sort of proved that oh yeah, you know, if you if you mess with this angle you get this resultant angle on the image and uh and so um, uh that was the mock up for the big mock up that we made and and oh, we struggled, you know, we had a uh, uh, we called it monitor weightlifting, you know, because we would pick this thing up and then, uh, you know, we would jack around with the angle of the of the monitor and, and then, you know, like the other guy would, like one guy's holding it up and the other guy's marking it with a pencil. And, you know, my Amiga uh, took a shit in the middle of the whole thing and we had to, like, I had the, all these goofy old, um, <clears throat> I had deluxe paint on, on the Amiga and for a while there it looked like I was going to have to reproduce uh, recreate the art because we had lost all this stuff and, you know, I had one of those stupid, uh, Amiga guru meditation errors and uh, everything went south and uh, I had, you know, I hadn't touched this computer in, in ten years or something and then so it had all these, and it had all these quirky features. I mean, you know, we, we complain about computers today. I mean, it's like we, we've forgotten what computers back then were. I mean, <laughs> it's yeah. like, and then we finally, finally managed to get it, uh, get it back up and, and running and um, and then by then um, I think there was uh, the pressure was mounting at Willie, and and it was a hell time for me because I was working on bash and uh, uh, you know Lyman just wouldn't hear of anything but you know 100% effort on the game so I had to give 100% to bash and then fit this in on top of it and and it, so it wasn't it wasn't pretty for me it was like I I felt like I had three jobs and it just uh, it was making me crazy. Um, I uh, the the drive. Uh, Pat lives way out in in the sticks relative to the big city. The drive was my uh, my decompression time, really. <laughs> I, I would do, and I the other thing I started doing was, uh, which was really jacking with my schedule. Was um, my engineer uh, Chris uh, used to, Chris Shippman, the guy that I mentioned earlier. Uh, he would have to come in and work kind of around Lyman's hours because you know we had to optimize Lyman's time on the machine. And so if the machine was down for two hours while we jacked around screwing mechanisms to the play field or whatever, or doing our testing or, you know, uh, shooting it or whatever, uh then it was it was two hours that Lyman couldn't mess with it. And it was only one Whitewood. It would sit in Lyman's office and it was like the master Whitewood with all the crap on it. And um <clears throat> so Shipman used to come in at like five in the morning and work until ten. Uh, well, I mean, he worked a full day, but, but at 10 o'clock, he was back on his computer and off the playfield because Lyman would come in at 10 and start working on the game. So, so I started keeping shipment hours to get my stuff done. And so, so the whole thing was, was making me crazy because I, you know, I'd get up at 5 and, and go into work and, and, uh, and then at, uh, at 6 o'clock, when, you know, Lyman would politely let me leave and, uh, <laughs> Uh, and I'd jump in, in my M3 and blast out the Pat's and, 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 and that was my decompression time just sitting in the seat and, and, and listening to music and thinking about life until I got out there and then I got out there and I'd work with Pat until 11 o'clock at night and then drive the bazillion miles home. So it, it, it sucked. It was not pretty. DeMar started feeling that, I think he, he got wind that, you
1: know,
2: things really were going to accelerate and they were really going to uh, do an evaluation pass on Pinball 2000 or something, I don't know what, but on, on the Papa Duke version, which was ongoing. So he started pressing us, and he basically, he called us one day and he said, I don't know where you are, but, uh, you need to get this thing in here now. And so, uh, uh, you know, we did that. Uh, everybody was kind of blown away, and I felt bad for John, because, you know, I kind of pulled the rug out from under him, but I, 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 um, I really, you know, I had to do what I believed in, and, and, uh, Pinball Two thousand, as I knew it, is what I believed in
0: when you introduced pinball Two thousand and Papaduke saw it for the first time, what was his reaction and did, or were you there to see his reaction?
2: I know he was disappointed. I think that um, you know he worked you know he were you know I like John a lot and he worked really hard on what he was doing. I mean he really poured himself into it it's It's not for any lack of trying that that uh um, you know his idea didn't get picked, but yeah, there was you know i mean there was a little bit of bad blood there for a little bit um, john's a professional and and I think that you know he handled it very well i think with given the the volatility of the guys in that engineering department, there's some other guys that would have been less grateful um, to me had had they been in his shoes so um, yeah, there was some uh, definitely. I don't think he was real pleased with it. The guy, you know, came up to me shortly after that and said, "You know what? Um, you're right. This is way uh, this is way cooler. We've changed, uh, you know, we've changed the future of uh, pinball." And um, and he jumped on the bandwagon and did did his thing. You know, from my background, my training, I should be the guy that's like all worried about the aesthetics all the time. You know, because that's what industrial designers do. It's part of part of the job that an industrial designer is responsible for. Um, uh, John, if you characterize all the designers in, in, in pinball, John is probably the guy who was most concerned about aesthetics and whose whose work was most driven by aesthetics. Uh, um, you know, my stuff. You know, I'm very, very concerned about aesthetics. Uh, my stuff. Uh, I'm I'm very practical. I mean, my stuff has to work and 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 do all kinds of things first, and then I worry about um, how I'm going to optimize the aesthetics. Pat is very much, uh, I think he's the movie director amongst us. You know, he, uh, uh, he's the guy that approaches it from the perspective of the complete entertainment experience kind of thing.
1: Steve, uh,
2: you know, is, um, I mean, he's the, the intensity and kind of, uh, he is the guy who, who's got his finger on fun. You know, I mean, his stuff is usually outrageously fun.
0: Have you seen his Spider Man?
2: Uh, I saw very early on a few months ago. Um, I was out at the factory and those guys um, let me shoot it. And it, it was a lot of fun then. And it was just a really, it was a very, very crude whitewood when I saw it. And I think he had, he actually had some really cool, um, he had a really cool goblin toy that I think he had a cost reduce uh, from what I remember. But, uh, um, you know, I, I, I love his stuff. His stuff is, is, is the, the stuff that I like to play more more than anybody else's stuff um and um so I think all of the designers have you know they i mean they all have a signature, they all have a thing they they concern themselves with. I think John starts with the aesthetics um I think that uh you know Steve is all about fun, and uh you know he's made some some outrageously fun stuff i i i enjoy i mean uh, to this day the game that i I come home um late at night and I light up the Terminator and play that thing and you know it's like I cannot walk away and it's like it keeps kicking my ass and I keep coming back to it and and, and you know I can't walk away until I've lit it up it's, it's very addictive and um, he makes
0: addictive stuff I obviously never saw the Papaduke one but you know just the scenario as you played it and if you want to measure history you know, in the in the in the you know, the caveman, the Gatleap Caveman and the Baby Pac Man scenarios, you know, they didn't really play out so well. Yeah. Yep. So you know, so he had that going against him.
2: Yep. I think every designer um, has a vision of what he wants. And uh what what he wanted in Pinball two thousand was just not something I liked, but it 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 um he certainly, you know, he put his heart and soul in it just as much as I put my heart and soul into the thing that I do, uh, that I, that I did. Um, and that's been the nature of designing games, uh, forever. I mean, it, not everybody likes everybody's stuff. And, so, uh.
0: Well, when you brought the, the Hollow Pin, In 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 you you know what who did you show it to first and the second you know like I've heard guys talk about yeah I didn't I wasn't there for the first meeting was that the management meeting give me the reaction of the different people and and who saw it
2: um, I think what 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 was cool about that event was that um you know I saw the sparkle in people's eye I, I saw you know I saw Nick Castro get excited about the thing. Um, so, you know, con- I mean, I don't know, contrary to what people say, I, I didn't perceive that he said, oh shit, uh, and, you know, maybe he said, it- maybe he said, oh shit after he thought it through, I don't know, um, but, uh, when we brought them in, you know, Kenny and Neil and, um, you know, Jimmy Patla and all those guys, everybody was like, whoa, this is it, you know, and so, um, you know, Pat and I, uh, Pat had, a, a like a red, it was a shroud, you know, <laughs> of some sort. And we put this thing in the back of, uh, Pat's uh, truck and brought it in and, and got it out there and set it all up and in a room. Actually, it was in a room across the street from, uh, Willie over on the Midway side, um, in a building that I work in now. And, um, uh, we set the thing up in this room and, uh, uh, covered it. Uh, the, the room that we set it up in it was next to Kenny Fidessa's office once the company split off, and um, we set it up in there with put this red big red uh, cover on it, and then people, you know, and then uh, uh, you know, you know, Pat and I have been around a while, and you know, we we learned presentation from some of the masters, you know, like I was talking about uh, Dave Nutting, you know, playing uh, the theme from 2001, bringing you into a dark room and sitting you down on a, you know, in a. In a thousand-dollar Recaro seat out of his uh, Ferrari, and uh, uh, you know, and, and telling you a story before you began to play the game. And, you know, you have to think back, and that that was 1977. So, uh, Pat and I both learned from Dave. You know, it's, it's, the presentation's a big deal. So we we uh, we did a big presentation. You know, big big. You know, this is what it is, and this is what you're going to see. And you know, you know, notice this, notice that. And,
0: uh, who who was in that initial meeting?
2: Um, basically, you know, executive management, senior management.
0: So Papa Duke and the rest of the teams weren't there yet?
2: No, no, no. They, and then what happened is, as soon as, uh, you know, it's like DeMar and, and um, um, uh, Patla and Kenny and Neil, <clears throat> I can't remember who else, but basically a fairly small crew. And then they brought in that and then, um, they, they, you know, every like, People started picking up the phone and calling people. You know, you know, I want you know, come over here. And so people started trickling in, and we started doing. At the end of the day, we had done the presentation about fifty times. (laughs) But uh, um, yeah, it was uh, it was something. Wow. And then that that was a complete shift in gears. And um, um, no, there was some. We we moved pretty quickly. I mean, we you know. In a very short period of time, we had decided on a theme. We had decided on uh, a structure. Um, the entire, you know, engineering team had kind of been. Um, uh, it was. I mean, Demar did a. Uh, Demar and Patla did uh, uh, just a, an incredible effort at uh, kind of deploying resources and focusing um, all the different talents into the areas that uh, um, they needed to be focused into
0: did now the um, the decision to use a PC you know a computer instead of a, a Williams generated hardware system what, did you agree with that decision um,
2: I did conceptually because what the, the vision was that the business was constantly evolving um, hardware sets so they were doing the R&D for us so imagine that as graphics cards progress we will be able to insert graphics cards into this platform and as as, as computing power progresses you know different CPUs will go into it and and so from that perspective it, it did seem to make sense um, it, it seemed like the most modular um, solution uh, the readily available solution funny to hear I forget I think it was the Joey interview where he says you know I can't believe it, a pat- a platform that's instantly obsoleted well it's routinely obsoleted by new stuff that fits into the same form factor so so I don't know how it is that, you know, it's like, yes, this specific chip is obsoleted and this specific graphics card is obsoleted, but the platform is inherently modular. So, you know, it's like uh, that was the reason it was, it, was, uh, it was selected. It was like, yeah, the PC business is going to do the R&D for us on our hardware. And not only that, it's done. It, we start tomorrow. Right. So, I mean, with the effort to program now it was it was a challenge mind you because the operating system was written by Tom Uban was going on the creation of the operating system was going on concurrently with creation of the game so uh and that posed all kinds of problems because um, a lot of the guys that were programming like like any environment you're going to have varying skill levels in um, in the people that are manipulating your technology the varying skill levels amongst all of the, the programming staff were um, became a, a big achilles heel in terms of um, some guys just didn't take to you know they were used to stomping around in a in a software environment that was somewhat uh harmless um, or easy to recover from and 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 now we moved into a into a high level language and in a new in a new area that um, you know a new operating system and and with with compilers that ran in in a different way and just I mean it, it was it was it was truly challenging for those guys and it um, when we went to London to premiere the thing we were so far from stable it wasn't even funny I mean it was uh, I'm I'm glad that the things survived the 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 show but um, they were they were pretty glitchy
0: did now there's going to be a documentary that's going to come out on pinball 2000 that you were interviewed for years ago actually it was that is their account of that pinball 2000 scenario very accurate um
2: pretty much There's a couple of things i take issue with but um, pretty much you, inter- you interview 20 people about an event and you're going to get 20 opinions and so um I think, for the most part, um, he's on the money. Hmm.
0: Now, the other thing in Pinball Two Thousand is there was a big thing about Joe Dylan in the Revenge from Mars. Can, can you tell me about that? Um, well, Joe
2: passed away. Um, either you know, Joe is the legendary Williams salesman, and um, and Joe passed away during that time, and so it was just a tribute to Joe. Um, you know, Joe is. You know, he was. Um, when I came up in the business, when I was starting out, the ultimate compliment somebody could pay you was to tell you that you were a coin man. And, and I guess I will say that um, Joe was most definitely a coin man.
0: Now, do you still have your the original hollow pin that you used to, to demonstrate to management?
2: Uh, I do not. Um, I don't know what happened to that thing. I think it either got a, What happened to that thing? Um, Either Pat has it or it got auctioned off or... It might have gotten auctioned off. I'm not sure. Um, Yeah, not not certain what happened to it. I mean, we've all seen it. It, Somehow, I I don't even remember how, but somehow it shows up in that documentary that you referred to. Um, And there's images of uh, of us working on it. And and I'm trying to think. I, I think that was... After we had brought it inside in my office, somebody uh, with more vision than us uh, saying, "I have to document this." And so there's an image of Pat and I fooling around with it in my office at Willie after we had brought it in.
0: Now, do you think that, um, like, say that Stern was going to take a you know a sharp right turn and was you know and they could get around it? And they could actually put out a pinball 2000 like platform. Do you think that that would work again today? No. Why? Um, The
2: pinball market is has you know has continued to compress you know since that time. Um, In some ways unabated. I mean, I think that I think that a large part of of his business model, of Gary's business model, is getting machines into the home, and um, the um, the other, the, I mean, as it is, you know, I think that you know, as I mentioned earlier, he struggles with uh, his, his margins uh, to make a profit and uh, and exist, and also, I mean, would a um, you know, would a consumer um, Pay you know pay another thousand uh, dollars for that device. I don't think so. There's another there's another thing that that is driving home sales, and that is the you know the nostalgia of a pinball machine. Um, when when you talk about a pinball machine to someone, what they picture is um, is a traditional pinball machine with a with a back box and a, and a lower cabinet. Um, they don't picture pinball 2000 and they certainly don't picture interactive video on a play field
0: right yeah no it's like when you watch a, a current movie on TV or, or, or whatever and, and somebody's playing a pinball machine you hear electromechanical dings and dongs, even though they're playing a you know a monster bash
2: yeah they're not even yeah so they, I mean that and that just goes to show you that that um, you know that is the, the kind of the Man on the street perception, if you will, perception that people have is you know I, I want an old style pinball machine. And my, my you know my friends, right? I'm, I'm 52 years old, right? So I I have a lot of married friends with kids and, and basements and and rec rooms and all that kind of stuff. And and they even even my friends in in the business that I'm in today, in the, in the video game business, um, they, they make a clear distinction. You know, the video goes on the TV with the Xbox 360 and The pinball is the pinball and it goes in the basement, you know, and I want all the lights and I want it flashing and I want, I want all the stuff and I want the toys moving and I want the ball and so it's, it's, you know, it's two different things and I I would not, I mean, if Gary, Gary will never say this to me, but if Gary ever said, you know, this is the direction I want to go in, I would, I would strongly advise against it. It doesn't make sense. It, 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 it made sense at that particular moment in time. Um, and it made sense for Williams Electronics, um, given who they were as, as the leader in the industry. Um, it doesn't make sense for the la- you know the last remaining pinball machine company on the planet.
0: Now, of all the, the the games, what are your of that you did not design? Not your games. What's your favorite game that's not your game?
2: Uh, Terminator Two.
0: Okay, so there's nothing. Terminator 2 and Monster Bash, two big ones. Oh no,
2: no, I mean I have a whole slew of them, right? I mean um, that I did not design. Um, um, You know, Defender, the video game. um, uh, Actually, I owned a Stargate, a Defender Stargate, for many, many years. And 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 a few years ago, I don't know what got into me. I don't know. I think I was when I was moving five years ago when I moved um, downtown. I, you know, I was going to have less space, and I sold I sold off that Stargate. And to this day, I kick myself. Uh, Pinball Machines, I, I, I loved Terminator 2, I loved um, uh, the original Black Knight, um, I loved um, uh, Star Trek Next Generation, Steve's game, um, um, I loved um, um, uh, Brian's game, uh, uh, Medieval Madness, um, I actually own one of those. I liked um, uh, Papa Duke's um, um, Theater of Magic, I thought that was a great game.
0: What would you think of the Circus Voltaire?
2: I uh, hated it hated it with a passion. Why? I don't know. I just hated everything about it. <laughs> didn't, I didn't get
0: it. George, I really, really, really appreciate your time, and I, I, I hope I didn't hold you too long here.
2: Nope, it's fine.
0: Okay. Uh, did I leave any stories out or any ask, not ask any questions I should have asked?
2: Uh, nope, I think you got it all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Alright, George, hey, I really appreciate your time. Again, thank you. No problem. Thanks oh. a lot. Alright, take care. Bye, I'd like to thank George Gomez for joining us tonight on TopCast. He has some amazing design stories about being a video game designer, a toy designer, and then finally a pinball machine designer, and um, how he came up with Pinball 2000. So again, I'd like to thank George. I really, really do appreciate his time. It was great talking to him, and I hope you all come back and hear us again on TopCast.